Welcome to Vaxanity. I am your host, Maccabee. The Gospel of Matthew. But the chief priests, having taken the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the corbona, because it is the price of blood. And after they had consulted together, they bought with them the potter's field to be a burying place for strangers. For this cause the field was called Hasodama, that is, the field of blood, even to this day. Clarifications on the medical and scientific nature of vaccination The lack of vaccinations of the population indicates a serious health risk of diffusing dangerous and often lethal diseases and infections that had been eradicated in the past, such as measles, rubella, and chickenpox. As noted by the Italian National Health Institute since 2013, there has been a progressive trend in decreasing vaccination coverage. Vaccination coverage data for measles and rubella decreased from 90.4% in 2013 to 85.3% in 2015, contrary to WHO indications that recommend 95% vaccination coverage to eliminate virus circulation. In the past, vaccines had been prepared using cells from aborted human fetuses. However, currently used cell lines are very distant from the original abortions. The vaccines being referred to, the ones most commonly used in Italy, are those against rubella, chickenpox, polio, and hepatitis A. It should be noted that today it is no longer necessary to obtain cells from new voluntary abortions and that the cell lines on which the vaccines are based in are derived solely from two fetuses originally aborted in the 1960s. From the clinical point of view, it should also be reiterated that treatment with vaccines, despite the very rare side effects, the events that occur most commonly are mild and due to an immune response to the vaccine itself, is safe and effective. No correlation exists between the administration of the vaccine and the onset of autism. Reflections on the Ethical Nature of Vaccines in 2005, the Pontifical Academy for Life published a document entitled Moral Reflections About Vaccines Prepared from Cells of Aborted Human Fetuses, which, in the light of medical advances and current conditions of vaccine preparation, could soon be revised and updated, especially in consideration of the fact that the cell lines currently used are very distant from the original abortions and no longer imply that bond of moral cooperation indispensable for an ethically negative evaluation of their use. On the other hand, the moral obligation to guarantee the vaccination coverage necessary for the safety of others is no less urgent especially the safety more vulnerable subjects, such as pregnant women and those affected by immunodeficiency who cannot be vaccinated against these diseases. 
As for the question of the vaccines that used or may have used cells coming from voluntarily aborted fetuses in their preparation, it must be specified that the wrong in the moral sense lies in the actions not in the vaccines or the material itself. The technical characteristics of the production of the vaccines most commonly used in childhood lead us to exclude that there is a morally relevant cooperation between those who use these vaccines today and the practice of voluntary abortion. Hence, we believe that all clinically recommended vaccinations can be used with a clear conscience, and that the use of such vaccines does not signify some sort of cooperation with voluntary abortion. While the commitment to ensuring that every vaccine has no connection in its preparation to any material of originating from an abortion, the moral responsibility to vaccinate is reiterated in order to avoid serious health risks for children and the general population. Rome, 31 July 2017 Pontifical Academy for Life. The Vatican-approved Pontifical Academy for Life fails to consider the sum total of accumulative sins that are bound to Big Pharma's vaccines. An honest accounting shows that Big Pharma's vaccines were derived from more than two child sacrifices. WI-38, developed in 1961 or 1962, taken from the lung tissue of a three-month aborted female baby, WI equals Wistar Institute, 38 equals 38th baby, whose Big Pharma procured murder was worthy enough to be documented. WI 38 was used to produce the chickenpox, shingles, and measles, mumps, rubella vaccines. RA 273 Developed in 1964, taken from the lung of a three-month aborted baby, R equals rubella, A equals abortus, 27 equals 27th baby, 3 equals third tissue explant. Stanley Plotkin, vaccine developer, would later reveal that 40 more babies were aborted after RA273 was successfully isolated with virus strains taken from 34 of them, 27 abortions plus 40 more abortions equals 67 abortions to produce rubella virus. Then, on top of the 67 murders, the additional 32 abortions to produce the cell line for cultivation means there was a sum total of at least 99 murdered children to create the rubella vaccine. RA273 was used to produce the measles, mumps, rubella, and MMR plus chickenpox vaccines. MRC5, developed in 1965 from the lung tissue of a 14-week aborted male baby, introduced in Great Britain by the Medical Research Council, MRC5 was used to produce the chickenpox, hepatitis A, hepatitis A and B, 
hepatitis A and typhoid, measles, mumps, rubella, MMR plus chickenpox, rabies, shingles, and smallpox vaccines. PERC6, developed in 1995, baby was aborted and frozen in 1985, used for the development of Ebola, flu, malaria, tuberculosis, HIV, and COVID-1984 vaccines, derived from an 18-week-old aborted baby in 1985. The main researcher for the PERC6 line, Van der Ebb, stated that the woman wanted to get rid of the fetus and the father was unknown. HEK-293, developed in 1972 or 1973 from aborted baby kidney cells genetically engineered combined with adenovirus. 293 is the number of the experiment present in several COVID-1984 vaccines. IMR-90 and IMR-91, developed in 1975 using lung and skin from female IMR-90 and male IMR-91 fetal lung tissues, created to replace the depleting WI-38, developed and characterized in such a way as to parallel WI-38 as closely as possible to minimize the variables in replacing WI-38 within ongoing laboratory programs. Walvax-2, developed in 2015 in China from the lung tissue of a three-month aborted baby girl who was ultimately selected from nine murdered children to replace the current MRC-5 and WI-38, which are depleting. The following article published by LifeNews.com is entitled Scientists in China Create New Vaccines Using Body Parts from Nine Aborted Babies. Due to dwindling capacity for existing aborted fetal cell lines to self-replicate, scientists in China have developed a new aborted fetal cell line, Walvax-2, that will be used for viral vaccine production. The existing cell lines, MRC5 and WI38, are currently used in MMR, varicella, hepatitis A, shingles, rabies, and polio vaccines. Walvax-2 is taken from lung tissue of a three-month gestation female who was ultimately selected from among nine aborted babies. The scientists noted how they followed specific guidelines to mimic WI-38 and MRC-5 in selecting the aborted babies, ranging from two to four months gestation. They further noted how they induced labor using a water bag abortion to shorten the delivery time and prevent the death of the fetus to ensure live intact organs, which were immediately sent to the labs for cell preparation. According to the studies published earlier this year in the NIH PubMed, scientists noted that Walvax-2 cells replicated more rapidly than MRC-5 cells, attained greater population doubling, and performed better or equal to the existing cell lines for culturing viruses. In 1964, Leonard Hayflick introduced what is known as the Hayflick Limit, 
how all normal cells have a finite lifespan and limited capacity to replicate before going into senescence and eventually become unstable and form tumors. Attempts to immortalize these cells to extend their lifespan have likewise introduced problems with tumor formations, as in aborted fetal cell line PERC6 introduced into the U.S. in 2001. Such seems to be the case with the introduction of Walvex 2 to replace Hayflix WI38 and Medical Research Council's MRC5. But instead of choosing from several WHO and FDA-approved moral cell line to replace them, they are using a new aborted fetal source. This is exactly what we have been saying for years, stated Debbie Venedge, Executive Director for Children of God for Life, an organization that has been monitoring the use of aborted fetal materials in vaccines and other consumer products. The pharmaceutical industry is not going to change their use of aborted fetal cells when they have tacit approval from our moral and medical leaders. For decades, both the pharmaceutical companies and even some ethicists have insisted that the abortions to produce the cell lines used in vaccines were not done with that intention, that it was only a couple of abortions from the past and that no further abortions would be needed now or in the future to produce vaccines. This may be the biggest lie ever told to the American public and the world at large, said Mrs. Venedge. Not only have there been hundreds of abortions directly involved with vaccine research, specifically for that purpose where they altered abortion methods to obtain intact fetal organs, but we are now seeing more and more abortions for fetal research and new cell lines emerging for viral vaccine cultivation. While Children of God for Life has been trying to expose these truths for the past 15 years, those warnings are now ringing startling accurate, as evidenced with the recent Planned Parenthood videos that have emerged through the Center for Medical Progress, CMP, showing how live, fully intact fetuses have been harvested for aborted fetal research. And while Planned Parenthood has tried to claim the videos are doctored and they have done nothing wrong, in reality the facts supporting the CMP evidence is not only damning, it has been fully documented in numerous science publications on vaccine research for the past 85 years. With concern rising, some have gone so far as to patently state that the cells used are really only descendant or daughter cells that are actually no longer a part of the original aborted fetus. Venedge is quick to point out that this too is nothing more than a pathetic attempt to placate concerned parents. Anyone with even a cursory knowledge of Biology 101 knows that the cells from a human being do not morph into something different over time, she stated. Further, from FDA safety standards, no human diploid cell line could be used for vaccine production on an ongoing basis if the cells somehow transformed or the DNA from that original aborted child was not fully and genetically intact. 
but once those cells reach their finite capacity for replication, they will eventually become unfit for vaccine production and another cell line will be needed. Unfortunately, they are selected of replacement using a new aborted fetal source is not good news for concerned parents, physicians, and pro-life leaders. Big Pharma is not interested in keeping a thorough tally of the vulnerable women that are preyed upon. Hayfleck references WI-44 in his report. The same holds true for the MRC-5 strain. Hayflick makes mention of the MRC-9 strain. The MRC-9 strain came from the murdered child of a 14-year-old mother. Much more than two aborted babies are involved and will continue to be involved in the development of Big Pharma's vaccines. The Pontifical Academy for Life and all the other agents of Big Pharma are fond of describing Big Pharma's murders as voluntary or procured. This seems to be noted for some implied relevance of moral weight. Of course, it is not voluntary or procured from the murdered child. The murdered child did not commit suicide or ask to be euthanized. The implication of describing these child sacrifices as voluntary or procured is that the murder of the child would be much worse if the consent of the mother was not granted. This is the godless mentality of the death cult who frames the murder of children as a woman's rights issue. These advocates of child sacrifice think that the central moral issue pertaining to the sanctioned murder of children concerns the right for women to freely choose their reproductive health care. Left means right, down means up, wrong means right, evil means good, and everything means nothing, just as long as the devil gets his due. This is the evil logic of the damned fool who safeguards the bodily autonomy of the mother and completely ignores the bodily autonomy of the murdered child. This is the lie of the satanic death cult. The Vatican-approved Pontifical Academy for Life often repeats this lie. An obvious lie presented as settled truth, a lie which minimizes the mortal sin of murder by describing the murder as voluntary or gained, is a sign of the demonic. These cowardly attempts to sterilize horrific evil are miserable failures. It is not a truthful description to call an abortion voluntary when it is performed on a 14-year-old girl or the many other vulnerable women that Big Pharma exploits abortions from, such as prostitutes or unwed mothers. Unwed mothers were once labeled feeble-minded in order for Big Pharma to procure criminal-made legal child sacrifices. The feeble-minded could have abortions imposed on them for psychological psychiatric or therapeutic reasons. It is not voluntary when those abortions take place in a country like China, which forces abortions on its people. Still, to this day, it is a sad reality that a godless grandparent will often force the murder of a grandchild. It is a sad reality that human traffickers and oppressive governments will impose terrible abortions and then have death 
cult agents whitewashed these forced abortions with the twisted incantation of calling a child's murder voluntary. If the very same circumstances for these vulnerable mothers were pertaining to imposed conception rather than imposed abortion, then the understanding of those circumstances would be a unanimous acknowledgement of deplorable violation. Perhaps then the abortion clinics would actually be concerned for the well-being of the mother. It is never voluntary or procured from the murdered child and has often failed to be truly voluntary or procured from the numerous vulnerable mothers involved in the development of Big Pharma's vaccines. For those mothers who have voluntarily procured the murder of their children without any external impositions, then the voluntary description is accurate. But the spiritual enslavement of the mother is what Big Pharma still preys upon. The evil one will control you by fooling you into believing that you, you alone, are in control of your life, that you may do what you wish, that no one has a right to command you, and that you can be the god of yourself. The evil one remains safe and effective when you remain willfully ignorant of his control. The justification for the RA273 abortions was eerily similar to the justification that is offered for the majority of abortions throughout the world today. Mothers are regularly intimidated by medical professionals and the godless, big pharma, eugenic-minded, evolved society they serve. For RA273, the mothers were scared with the deceptive threat of rubella. Today, mothers are threatened with the godless fear of giving birth to a female or to a disabled child. It matters not that the godless warnings from these medical professionals are often false. It matters not that these murdered children are precious to God. It matters not that their blood cries out for justice. All that matters for the godless is the justification of grave sin. Satan's kingdom is built upon this hell-bound foolishness. Regardless of the justifications that Big Pharma offers for its murders, the motivation for Big Pharma is not to provide health care for women and children. Big Pharma is not motivated to provide reproductive rights for women or support for families. The motivation behind the accumulative sins of Big Pharma is ultimately satanic. These murdered children were not intended to be discarded and then rescued from oblivion. The murders of these children were not made valuable by the good intentions of modern science. Dr. C. Ward Kisher has noted, in order to sustain 96% of the cells, the live tissue would need to be preserved within five minutes of the abortion. These murdered children deserved a proper burial, but instead were selected before they were born, harvested, purchased, and then trafficked for the sinful development of 
Big Pharma's vaccines. The July 2017 statement from the Pontifical Academy for Life is not a diligent, honest, Christ-centered fruit from sincere consideration of the vaccine industry's many abominations in lockstep with Big Pharma's PR talking points that are solicited from the overwhelming majority of bought and paid for media, governments, medical schools, journals, hospitals, care providers, and public health authorities throughout the world in lockstep with the uninformed, godless death cult maniacs that dominate the sinful culture of our depraved societies, in lockstep with Satan's perversion, the Pontifical Academy for Life proclaims lies from hell. Big Pharma is fond of claiming unmerited credit for the health improvements of societies. These health improvements are truthfully attributed to proper nutrition and purified environments. Yet Big Pharma gives the credit to their magical vaccines. The death rate for measles, rubella, chickenpox, and the other usual phantoms from Big Pharma's playbook had declined by more than 99% before Big Pharma's vaccines were introduced to the public. Ironically, these vaccines continue to harm the health of societies, and yet Big Pharma, with the poison of Satan's foolishness, has manipulated its prey into believing that the vaccination rate must spread beyond 95% to prevent avoidable deaths from rising out of their eradicated graves. The Pontifical Academy for Life attempts to sell Big Pharma snake oil by selecting a few illnesses as examples for their uncritical thoughts. The threat of measles, rubella, and chickenpox are presented as a scare tactic to convince us to roll up our sleeves for the vaccines that Big Pharma is proud to deploy. Receiving the temporary artificial immunity does not strengthen the entire immune system for lifelong benefits. The benefits from the natural development of lifelong immunity reach far beyond the mild, non-dangerous, non-lethal childhood diseases that are typically whipped up for hysterical Big Pharma vaccination campaigns. The mild, non-dangerous, non-lethal childhood diseases offer lifelong benefits to the child. Neither measles, rubella, nor chickenpox are dangerous nor lethal to healthy individuals in healthy environments. In 1960, before the measles vaccine was introduced, the U.S. death rate from measles was 0.036 per 100,000 measles cases. One in 300,000 people with measles died before the vaccine ever arrived. More people in developed nations have died from the Big Pharma vaccine than they have from measles. If you are malnourished and living in an unsanitary environment, then any sickness, any cause of dehydration may be dangerous or lethal. In such cases, Vaccines will not be the solution to the problem. The standard for proof that vaccines cause autism is far greater than the standard applied to believe that they are safe and effective.
Big Pharma and its minions mock those who refuse vaccines with the caricature of noisy crackpots. The refusers of these vaccines are branded as threats to a healthy society. The hateful persecution of these refusers is then justified as a necessary means to achieve the greater good for their godless civilization. If they recklessly reach for the ignorant, unproven delusion that trustworthy Big Pharma's magical vaccines cause autism, then their banishment from evolved humanity is a virtuous necessity. This hysterical trance prevents any criticism of Big Pharma's vaccines. The U.S. government secretly acknowledged the link between vaccines and autism in the case of Hannah Poling. The government's special master determined that the Poling family deserved a lifelong multi-million dollar compensation for the likelihood that vaccines were the primary agent in Hannah's development of autism. It was no small victory for the Poling family. The case they won in the kangaroo vaccine court was polling versus health and human services. Big Pharma was responsible for the harm done to the polling family. However, Big Pharma was also conveniently exempt from accepting responsibility for the polling family's compensation. Every vaccine within the United States has a tax added to it so that a pot of money may be gathered for those who are seriously injured by safe and effective vaccines. By design, this money is rarely distributed. The pot of money is not large enough to cover all the cases that are submitted to the U.S. government. The U.S. would be bankrupted if every vaccine-injured family were properly compensated for the lifelong tolls that vaccines have taken. The U.S. government conveniently categorizes vaccines as biologics and thus makes Big Pharma invincible from legal accountability. This protection for Big Pharma also obstructs accountability for the corrupt government health authorities that are driven to push Big Pharma vaccines. The vaccine court within the U.S. Court of Federal Claims serves the interests of corrupt government and of irresponsible Big Pharma. Most of the cases that are submitted to this no-fault, non-judicial court are never granted a hearing. Being a no-fault, non-judicial court, Big Pharma never has to admit responsibility, and the plaintiff is never granted formal discovery. Corrupt government guardians remain Big Pharma's loyal accomplices. The only avenue of legal recourse available to the polling family or any other American family who is harmed by Big Pharma's dangerous and lethal vaccines is to submit their case to the U.S. Court of Federal Claims. Families must have the resources and the fortitude to endure this adversarial process. With the necessary resources, the polling family was able to have their day in court. The vaccine court respondent who presents aggressive and unethical opposition to vaccine-injured plaintiffs is the Secretary of Health and Human Services. The respondent is represented by multiple attorneys from the Department of Justice. The Department of Health and Human Services often likes to portray itself as a guardian of public health, 
as all public health authorities pretend to be. In reality, they are the guardians of Big Pharma and are primarily interested in securing Big Pharma's control of the medical industry, which Big Pharma established. The U.S. government and its public health authorities push Big Pharma's biologics-labeled drugs onto the public and prevent any oversight and accountability of Big Pharma's agenda. The drugs of Big Pharma that are categorized as pharmaceuticals are not given the same measures of government protection. With legal accountability in place, Big Pharma is more careful with its safety trials and more cautious in bringing their pharmaceutical drugs to market. Despite this accountability, it is the legal discovery process that has revealed and continues to reveal Big Pharma's repeated fraud and reckless endangerment. Big Pharma calculates the fraction of profit that may be lost from potential lawsuits, and if the margin is acceptable to Big Pharma's bottom line, then the public is endangered. Along with Big Pharma's crimes, the crimes of corrupt health authorities are also exposed when big industry is made subject to the judicial process. Mild childhood diseases or rising cases of COVID-1984 are not dangerous or lethal to the human race. Contrarily, the conspiratorial relationship between big industry and big government is among the greatest threats to human prosperity. This is most certainly the relationship between Big Pharma and every big government in the world. Disappointingly, this is not a cause for serious concern from the Vatican. The relationship between Big Pharma and the U.S. government illustrates Satan's grip on the world. Big Pharma spends more money on political lobbying than all other lobbyists. Big Pharma outspends Big Oil by nearly twice the amount. In the mid-1980s, Big Pharma was being driven out of business from continually losing multiple lawsuits against their unethical, fraudulent vaccines. These vaccines were devastating families with sudden infant death syndrome, brain hemorrhages, polio, and a host of other dangerous and lethal side effects. In 1986, Big Pharma was able to successfully lobby for exemption from legal and financial responsibility to vaccine recipients. This was accomplished by their control of media and corrupt government. In 1986, the U.S. government solidified its allegiance to Big Pharma. The U.S. government remains Big Pharma's steadfast weapon of domination. In the early 1980s, the vaccine market was worth $170 million. In 2020, the vaccine market was worth over $60 billion. That's a 350-fold increase. That's the front end of Big Pharma's profit from vaccines. Far more profitable is the money made from the drugs that treat the chronic illnesses which Big Pharma begrudgingly lists as adverse effects from their vaccines. Big Pharma makes over $500 billion in the medications that treat those chronic illnesses. What's more, 
Big Pharma stands to gain a significant increase in profits with the golden goose of COVID-1984. Since 2009, the four major pharmaceutical companies that produce all the vaccines for the United States vaccine schedule have been repeat felons, paying over $35 billion in criminal penalties for their pharmaceutical drugs, in damages and fines for defrauding regulators, for falsifying science, for bribing doctors, for lying to the public, and for killing hundreds of thousands of victims. If the unofficial death toll is taken into account, the deaths not traced by Big Pharma's criminal penalties, then the count is most likely in the millions. Big Pharma has no moral incentive to make vaccines safe and effective. The corrupt government refuses to protect the public from the dangers of these vaccines. Vaccines are the only medical product that is exempt from legitimate safety testing. Not only are these repeat offenders exempt from prudent safety measures, they are also exempt from all legal liability. These convicted criminals, these reckless sociopaths, are nonetheless trusted to prioritize public health over corporate profit. With the Big Pharma's governmental control in place, chronic illness in children has skyrocketed from 12.8% in 1986 to 54% in 2019. The U.S. has the most aggressive vaccine schedule. The U.S., unlike the rest of the world, goes so far as to vaccinate children on the day of their birth for a pseudo-scientific measure that enables the sinful lifestyles of adults. The U.S. has suffered the highest first-day infant death rate out of all the industrialized countries in the world. Rather than being the healthiest nation in the world, it is the sickest among developed nations. A reasonable explanation for this is the premature, artificial, genetically modifying, contaminating, unnatural manipulation of children's immune systems. This foolish intervention is interfering with the critical first two years of our children's natural development. The U.S. government, serving the interests of Big Pharma, makes every effort to deny the dangerous and lethal toll of vaccine injuries, their best effort to disregard Hannah Poling's harm from Big Pharma's vaccines could only muster the ridiculous disclaimer that, although the onset of Hannah Poling's autism is correlated to the administration of vaccines, the vaccines did not cause the onset of Hannah Poling's autism. It sounds illogical because it is illogical. Essentially, this admits that if Hannah Poling had never received the vaccines, then Hannah Poling would have never developed autism. Hannah Poling's family argued, as so many intelligent families have argued, that there is a correlation between the administration of the vaccine and the onset of autism. These families are often discredited as anti-vaxxers, which smears a reasonable position with the brush of Big Pharma social engineering. Hannah Poling's family argued 
that Hannah's autism was the result of vaccines being extremely harmful to her mitochondrial disorder. The polling family were proven correct in assigning the responsibility of Hannah's autism to vaccines. It was not her mitochondrial disorder that caused her autism. Had she not received Big Pharma's vaccines, she would not have developed autism. Big Pharma belittles this reality with cheap dismissal. When cornered by relevant science, Big Pharma simply denies the many harms of their vaccines by shamelessly commandeering that science to excuse themselves from responsibility. If forced to acknowledge the link between vaccines and autism, then Big Pharma spins their admission of guilt to sound as though vaccines don't cause autism, but mitochondrial disorders may result in autism. There is a sound argument that mitochondrial disorders may have developed from the accumulation of Big Pharma vaccinations, but that is beside the point. Big Pharma's vaccines are exempt from responsibility if the two-year-old child fails to indicate any and every potential contraindication to the medical care provider. These contraindications are often unknown due to the lack of valid safety trials and inadequate post-marketing surveillance. The known contraindications are usually buried in the safe and effective mantra. If the administration of the Big Pharma vaccine causes harm, then it is not the vaccine's fault. It is the result of contraindications. Safe and effective. Safe and effective. Safe and effective. This is the safety standard that Big Pharma has established for its dangerous and lethal vaccines. If Big Pharma says it is safe, then it is trusted to be safe. In Big Pharma, we trust. For all those seriously injured or killed by vaccines, we simply blame it on their pre-existing incompatibility with the safe and effective vaccines. They are marked down as the collateral damage that needs to be accepted for evolved science to win the war against germs. With the support of their corrupt public health authorities, Big Pharma remains immune from accountability. The twisting of words, the evasion of responsibility, does not reflect a sincere concern for public health. This apathetic response to the correlation between the administration of the vaccine and the onset of autism slithers off of Big Pharma's sociopathic forked tongue with the sole aim of maintaining the mindless compliance from Big Pharma's evolved societies. The Vatican-approved Pontifical Academy for Life is mindless enough, evolved enough, dishonest enough to echo Big Pharma's dismissive sentiment. It is the growing opposition to Big Pharma's government-enforced vaccines that continues to ask the public health authorities, such as the Center for Disease Control, for a comparative data study of the fully vaccinated and the fully unvaccinated. That health study would be easy to produce from their extensive database. 
the studies that have been conducted outside of the expansive CDC database continue to show that the fully unvaccinated are overwhelmingly healthier than the fully vaccinated, along with all the chronic illnesses, with all the allergies and learning disabilities, the fully vaccinated show a remarkably higher rate of autism spectrum disorder. The Center for Disease Control refuses to produce this key comparison. If Big Pharma's safe and effective slogan is true, then this comparative data study would decisively strengthen Big Pharma's weak, unproven, unscientific, irrational claim that vaccines are harmless lifesavers. This key comparison would then benefit their drive to increase the vaccination rate. Surely they have conducted a comparison in secret and have seen that the numbers undermine the big pharma institution which they serve. This is the most reasonable explanation for the CDC's unwillingness to publish the essential data. Instead of logical persuasion, they rely upon forceful mandates and social intimidation. Much like the Vatican-approved Pontifical Academy for Life, the public health authorities are not truly concerned about public health. Their real aim is to serve the will of Big Pharma. Prior to the Big Pharma legislation that was passed in 1986, there were seven vaccines on the recommended vaccine schedule. These seven vaccines were not administered on top of one another. With the Big Pharma legislation in place, which exempted Big Pharma from all accountability, one-year-old Hannah Poling was able to receive nine vaccines in one doctor's visit. The nine vaccines, which resulted in the onset of Hannah Poling's autism, were administered in one doctor's visit because untrustworthy Big Pharma reassures us that vaccines are safe and effective. Big Pharma is unable to provide any proper safety studies to show that the administration of multiple vaccines is not a health threat to Big Pharma's subjects. But because Big Pharma's vaccines are immune from criticism, there is no limit to the number of vaccines that can be administered at the same time. All at once, Hannah was vaccinated against measles, mumps, rubella, polio, chickenpox, diphtheria, pertussis, tetanus, and haemophilus influenzae. These vaccinations were not beneficial to Hannah's health. None of these vaccinations are worth the torment of autism. The Vatican nonetheless insists that families risk the well-being of their children for the sake of Big Pharma's vaccination rate. The Vatican-approved Pontifical Academy for Life proclaims their faithless utilitarianism with the conclusion of their unconscionable statement. The moral responsibility to vaccinate is reiterated in order to avoid serious health risks for children and the general population. Big Pharma-funded, deceptive studies manipulate terms and numbers for Big Pharma's predetermined conclusions. This corporate science is propped up by self-interested, corrupt government, mindless media, and illiterate hecklers. 
a serious review of the unbiased science free from Big Pharma's interests clearly shows the link between vaccines and the autism epidemic. Prior to the invention of the hypodermic needle, when we were not injecting contaminants beneath our skin, there were not allergy problems, autoimmune diseases, autism epidemics, or the abyss of cancers that have accompanied the vaccinated age of Big Pharma. If you're putting contaminants into your body the wrong way, then they are not passing through the digestive system. They're not being broken down appropriately. When they are injected into the bloodstream, they are entering the body with a disordered pathology that is deprived of natural safeguards. You can develop an inappropriate immune response, which may result in allergies that correspond to the vaccine ingredients, a variety of autoimmune diseases, and other disorders from the dysfunction of immune reactions. Big Pharma vaccines can cause autism in children with mitochondrial disorder. The knowledge of mitochondrial disorders is still developing. This explains why United States estimates for the number of mitochondrial disorders present in children with autism ranges from 20% to 80%. If 80% of children with autism have this detrimental contraindication, then it is imperative to understand mitochondrial disorders before injecting our vulnerable children with multiple big pharma vaccines, especially since the epidemic has rapidly developed from having the first person diagnosed in 1933 to an estimate of 1 in 10,000 in the 1970s to the recent estimate of 1 in 36. There are several other reasonable correlations between Big Pharma vaccines and the onset of autism. Dr. Theresa Deicher has shown the correlation between the administration of vaccines derived from murdered children and the multiplication of autism rates. Dr. Deicher presented data which indicated that when a new aborted fetal cell line vaccine was added to the country's vaccine schedule, the country had a corresponding rise in autism incidents. Dr. Deicher noted the temporal relationship between the vaccine trigger and the autism spike. Dr. Deicher also noted the escalated impact relative to the escalated dosage. The rise in autism incidence rose twice as much when two aborted fetal cell vaccines were added to the schedule, and three times as much when three aborted fetal cell vaccines were added to the schedule. Dr. Deicher even provided the reasonable biological mechanism, homologous recombination, to explain that global trend of autism incidence. Regardless of the specific link between the Big Pharma vaccine and the child, there is certainly good cause to trust the mounting testimonies of parents who have witnessed the connection between the child's adverse reactions to the Big Pharma vaccines and the child's onset of regressive autism. Many parents initially resist the conclusion that their children's autism resulted from the permitted vaccinations. 
Eventually, they arrive at that conclusion after their continual first-hand witness of the adverse effects from these big pharma vaccines, followed by the obvious regression of their child's development. The parents are devastated to watch their child lose vocabulary, speech, eye contact, mobility, and all hope for a healthy future. These parents, after being ignored and abandoned by their care providers when seeking answers for the health decline of their child, become more informed about the dangers of vaccines. More informed than the big pharma medical establishment. More informed than the corrupt health authorities. And more informed than the Vatican. It requires a sincere desire for truth to dispel the big pharma myth that no correlation exists between the administration of the vaccine and the onset of autism. J.B. Hanley makes a strong case for the link between vaccines and autism. J.B. Hanley happens to be one of those parents who reluctantly developed a healthy distrust for the Big Pharma medical establishment after witnessing the harm it had done to his vaccine-injured child. Here are a few excerpts from his book entitled How to End the Autism Epidemic that capture the hellish toll of autism. I've been haunted by Dr. Patterson's quote ever since I first read it because of this one line, there's an ongoing permanent immune system activation in the brains of autistic people. I can't help but think is this what my son is experiencing? His head always seems to hurt. Sometimes he slaps himself in the head. He often seeks head pressure, seemingly to alleviate discomfort. Is his brain permanently swollen and in a state of subclinical infection? And if it is, how in the world did it get that way? What created this condition? What triggered it? And of course, how do I reduce the inflammation and help him feel better? As you know, the immune activation event leads to what Dr. Patterson called an ongoing permanent immune system activation in the brains of autistic people. And guess what? Permanent immune system activation means inflammation, which would lead to a large brain and a swollen forehead is that why children with autism are known to headbang? Perhaps you would, too, if your brain was in a state of permanent inflammation. The videos overwhelm hundreds of parents, all saying the same thing. Honestly, I can't watch them all. It's too much. It's been 13 years since Jameson's diagnosis. I've learned to bottle my pain. It sits mostly untended in the back of my brain, mostly. It comes out once in a while, usually when I tell someone new about Jameson, about what happened to him. Sometimes it seeps out, but every once in a while, it's a flood. Just the other night, Jameson struck himself in the head as hard as he could with the back of his left hand. His hand swelled up, the size of a baseball. I was sure it was broken. He was in so much pain. He sat in the shower trying to wash off the giant swelling. I lay on the bathroom floor near him, 
and bawled my brains out, heaving sobs, seeing him in pain, seeing him hit himself, seeing him not understand what his body was doing. It was just too much. Then I got up, got dressed, and took him to the emergency room. Mercifully, it wasn't broken. If you're an autism parent, you're nodding. You understand. Horrible things happen, and you find a way to endure. Here is a lengthy section from J.B. Hanley's book that offers greater consideration than the Vatican-approved Academy's regurgitation of Big Pharma spin. In a special feature in the British medical journal BMJ in late 2017, associate editor Dr. Peter Doshi revealed how the most influential pro-vaccine advocacy organizations are all funded by the pharmaceutical industry, with their names being, for example, the Immunization Action Coalition, Every Child by Two, and even the American Academy of Pediatrics. Dr. Doshi explains how much funding the vaccine advocacy nonprofits receive from vaccine manufacturers is hard to pin down, but it seems to be substantial. And he goes on to detail that, in its most recent 2016 annual givings report, AAP lists numerous corporate donors, including vaccine manufacturers GlaxoSmithKline, MedImmune, Merck, Pfizer, Sanofi Pasteur, and Securis. Dr. Doshi explains that many of these advocacy groups who go to great lengths to appear like objective third parties also receive funding directly from the CDC and appear to move in lockstep with the CDC's policy goals. The BMJ asked IAC, ECBT, and AAP to point to an instance when they had questioned a CDC recommendation. None did. Barbara Minces, a University of Sydney lecturer and researcher on conflicts of interest, offered a strong critique of these faux-independent organizations. These groups are so strongly pro-vaccination that the public is getting a one-sided message that all vaccines are created equal, and vaccination is an important public health strategy, regardless of the circumstances. I'm reminded of the sordid history of so many profit-seeking industries that were ultimately shown to be causing real harm. While I've already recounted the tobacco playbook, the lead industry was equally vicious in prolonging the poisoning of so many not only through the use of lead in gasoline, but also lead in paint where it was particularly damaging to children. In 2013, The Atlantic took this topic on with an article titled Why It Took Decades of Blaming Parents Before We Banned Lead Paint. The article explains, Since the 1920s, the lead industry had organized to fight bans, restrictions, even warnings on paint can labels. It had marketed the deadly product to children and parents, spreading the lie that lead paint was safe. For decades, paint ads appeared in the Saturday Evening Post, Good Housekeeping, National Geographic, and other national magazines and local newspapers. Coloring books were handed out to children. The industry even sent Dutch boy costumes to children on Halloween, 
and printed coloring books that showed children how to prepare it. The Atlantic explains how lead paint makers blamed parents who failed to stop children from placing their fingers and toys in their mouths, and that children poisoned by lead had a disease that led them to suck on unnatural objects and thereby get poisoned. It's all so hauntingly similar to so many of the comments we hear from vaccine makers, CDC officials, and their paid spokespeople. Vaccine injury is one in a million. The timing of regression into autism and vaccine appointments is a coincidence. The clear biological evidence linking vaccines to autism is the work of anti-vaccine activists and debunked science and can't be believed. Lead manufacturers followed a similar path, but the industry wouldn't remove all lead from their products. It fought every attempt at regulation. Industry representatives threatened lawsuits against television stations such as CBS that aired popular shows like Highway Patrol in which the product was depicted as dangerous. All this despite records that show that the industry knew that their product was poisoning children. This is what self-interested people do, unfortunately. They cover it up, deny, and prolong the inevitable. A 1945 ad from Philip Morris reminds you that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and that Philip Morris cigarettes are scientifically proved far less irritating to the nose and throat, reassuring consumers that when smokers change to Philip Morris, substantially every case of irritation of the nose and throat due to smoking either cleared up completely or definitely improved, and they let you know that findings were reported in a leading medical journal. We read the ad today and laugh out loud which part of the safe and effective marketing message about vaccines will make future generations laugh just as hard. There's a popular meme that's shared within the autism community on social media with a picture of a sheep's face. The caption reads, If vaccines caused autism, they would have told us. This is a common argument I hear, and I understand. It feels too huge to believe. Have people in the know really stood by and watched something so terrible happen to so many children and their families? In my early years of researching this topic, I shared this reservation. It's hard to wrap your brain around it. Have they really let this happen? In the financial world, the result of the pressure to manipulate numbers to provide the answers bosses want has a name, securities fraud. Autism parent and author Mark Blacksell told Congress in 2012, in medicine there are similar pressures. They're called special interest politics and peer review, and what the CDC has given us is the medical equivalent of securities fraud, all to avoid the inconvenient reality of the autism epidemic. Identifying the they behind the enablement of the autism epidemic is confusing. Is it just the CDC? How much of a role has Big Pharma played? What about scientists who have published bogus, distracting, or misleading scientific studies? What about pediatricians who turn a blind eye to the complaints of parents? And what about the role of the AAP? I think it's really all of the above because the lines between CDC, Big Pharma, the AAP, and most pediatricians are very, very blurry. They are all profiting immensely from our giant vaccine program. 
Dr. Paul Thomas is a pediatrician in my hometown of Portland, Oregon. He's not just any pediatrician. He has the single largest pediatric practice in the city, and he's also the best-selling co-author with Jennifer Margulis, Ph.D., of The Vaccine-Friendly Plan, published in 2016. Dr. Thomas is a member of the American Academy of Pediatrics, but his views on vaccines are decidedly not mainstream, and he's a harsh critic of his colleagues. I debated the rise in autism endlessly with my colleagues, though I believe they were as worried as I was. It was sadly easier for many of them to shrug their shoulders, adjust the stethoscopes around their necks, and deny the evidence in front of them. So is it really that hard to imagine that a bunch of self-interested people could do their small part to obscure the reality of the autism epidemic? In 2017, Huffington Post reporter Martha Rosenberg answered this question with one of my all-time favorite headlines. Vaccines are totally safe, say the people who brought us Vioxx, Bextra, Baycol, Trovan, Fenfen. Miss Rosenberg's article was promptly removed by the Huffington Post, causing Miss Rosenberg to tweet, Hashtag Huff has censored this factual sourced piece by a credential reporter on hashtag vaccines. Thinking back to that popular meme, couldn't we insert any man-made health catastrophe of the past century into the same statement? These only sound absurd in retrospect, because we know how each of these stories ends. If the water in Flint, Michigan had been full of lead, they would have told us. If asbestos caused mesothelioma, they would have told us. If lead paint caused brain damage, they would have told us. If Vioxx caused heart attacks, they would have told us. If thalidomide caused birth defects, they would have told us. If silicone breast implants leaked, they would have told us. If DDT destroyed ecosystems, they would have told us. Do I need to keep going? Millions of children could be injured before the truth becomes common knowledge. I pray that the day of reckoning for vaccines is not still decades away. The internet, social media, a powerful Kennedy publicly shouting, and perhaps a sympathetic president might bring about the truth sooner. I'm hopeful. Personally, I think it's the science and the admissions of key scientists that will win the day, just like it did with tobacco. A brief review of how we got here. Here, I think we're very close to a reckoning of the autism epidemic. I know I've shared so much information with you in this book. I'd like to pause and revisit the major events and key takeaways. In 1986, a new law indemnifies vaccine makers from liability, leading to a spike in the number of vaccines children receive. The 1986 law calls for the establishment of a vaccine court, which means that if your child is injured, you have to sue the U.S. government. In vaccine court, there's no jury, just a special master. As vaccine makers shed their fear of lawsuits from vaccine injuries, the number of vaccines on the childhood schedule triples by the late 1990s. 
Meanwhile, safety testing for vaccines takes place one vaccine at a time and for a short period of time. When vaccine makers test the vaccine for safety, they record adverse events for a week or less. Side effects that take more than a week to manifest, which is most, are never recorded. Synergistic effects with previous or subsequent vaccines are also, therefore, never discovered. Once a vaccine is on the market, side effects which can be extremely complex to identify are rarely detected or recorded accurately. Most doctors don't know what to look for. The Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, VAERS, which is the public's recourse for reporting a vaccine injury, captures less than 1% of injuries because parents must know to actively seek it out. These factors, inadequate safety testing, near non-existent doctor training, and a minuscule rate of reporting from the public, has allowed an emerging epidemic of vaccine injuries to hide in plain sight. As more and more parents begin to report regression after vaccine appointments in the mid to late 1990s, the CDC responds by publishing studies to quash concern. The emergence of the internet in the late 1990s allowed parents to start comparing stories, many of which sounded eerily similar, and mobilize in a new way. The CDC pushed back with epidemiological studies looking at a single ingredient, the Marisol, to prove that the vaccine schedule in its entirety was safe. CDC scientists also compared children who received some mercury in their vaccines to children who received slightly less mercury as more blanket evidence that vaccines do not cause autism. The study's author, Dr. Thomas Verstraden, complained that the study's findings were misrepresented, but the messaging that vaccines are safe and don't cause autism sticks nevertheless. When British doctor Andrew Wakefield raises concerns about the MMR vaccine in 1998, a kangaroo court strips him of his medical license and the ensuing media frenzy morphs into a defense of the entire vaccine schedule and an attack on anyone who reasonably questions it. As scientists investigating the link between vaccines and autism begin to fear getting wakefielded, the CDC produces further epidemiological studies that are once again misrepresented to show that because certain studies claim MMR doesn't cause autism, no vaccine or combination of vaccines could possibly cause autism. Eight years later, Dr. Wakefield co-produces a documentary, Vaxxed, about Dr. William Thompson, a CDC whistleblower who confessed to publishing fraudulent data exonerating MMR in 2004 in a study he co-authored. As of this writing, attempts to have Dr. William Thompson testify before Congress have been unsuccessful. In late 2004, the brains of persons with autism are studied for the first time. Dr. Carlos Pardo Viamizer of Johns Hopkins discovers that the immune system in the brains of people with autism is in a permanent state of inflammation, leading to an obvious question, what's causing the inflammation? In 2007, the most important discovery about the biological cause of autism emerges from Caltech scientist Dr. Paul Patterson. Patterson's foundational discovery that immune activation events at critical phases of brain development lead to the development of autism appears to tie together key findings. Vaccines are specifically intended to trigger immune activation events. Parents' reports of their children's injuries following vaccine appointments 
elements correspond to Patterson's immune activation event hypothesis. Autism brains are shown to be in a state of constant inflammation. Meanwhile, the vaccine court turns out to be a treasure trove of information about how vaccines can cause autism. After Hannah Poling's case is publicly leaked to journalist David Kirby in 2008, Mary Holland and Lou Conte unearthed more than 80 additional cases in which the vaccine court awarded damages to families with children who experienced regressive autism caused by vaccines. Many of the vaccine court's decisions provide medical details for how the vaccines caused brain damage and autism. According to Holland's 2011 study published in Pace Environmental Law Review, unanswered questions from the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. International scientists begin to study the neurological risks of the widely used vaccine adjuvant aluminum. The number of studies multiplies and they consistently demonstrate that vaccine aluminum crosses the blood-brain barrier, resulting in immune activation events and serious neurological problems. Now, the specific ingredient that appears to be triggering autism has been identified. In 2017, Professor Christopher Exley discovers shockingly high levels of aluminum in the brains of people with autism. Exley urges extreme caution in administering aluminum-containing vaccines. In late 2017, the CDC releases the latest figures on autism, 1 in 36, showing that incidence continues to skyrocket. The autism rate was roughly 1 in 10,000 in the 1970s, based on thorough large-scale studies in Wisconsin, Minnesota, and nationally. When my son was diagnosed in 2004, the rate was 1 in 150. Today, it's 1 in 36. A cottage industry has developed trying to explain away an epidemic. Books like Neurotribes propagate myths that autism has always been with us. No data supports this revisionist history. Evidence that we have an epidemic has been validated many times in published studies. In early 2018, two of the most important expert witnesses in vaccine court, Dr. Andrew Zimmerman and Dr. Richard Kelly, switched sides in dramatic fashion, testifying on behalf of the family of Yates Hazelhurst, one of the three children used as a test case in the Omnibus Autism Proceedings, OAP, of 2009, that Yates's autism was caused by vaccines. Had they held this position in 2009, the vaccine court likely would have been compelled to favor the vaccine autism connection, resulting in justice for more than 5,000 claimants, possibly triggering the kind of reckoning needed to end this epidemic. Dr. Zimmerman states that many of his colleagues share his view that vaccines can trigger autism if there is mitochondrial dysfunction, something Dr. Kelly estimates is true for 25 to 50 percent of children with autism. And here we are. Scientists are speaking up. Doctors are speaking up. And parents have always spoken up. I believe we are on the cusp of a reckoning. There is no way to end the autism epidemic without exposing the lies surrounding it and demanding accountability. Once you start to consider the actual argument, you begin to discover more studies, more facts, and more evidence that persuasively link Big Pharma and its coddled vaccines to the modern autism epidemic. It is more than reasonable to suspect that Big Pharma vaccines have contributed to the autism epidemic. Setting aside autism from the discussion, the conversation about the dangers and ineffectiveness of Big Pharma's vaccines is far from 
from over. The ingredients found in Big Pharma vaccines ought to give pause to anyone concerned with what they consume, more so with Big Pharma vaccines, as these dangerous and lethal biologics not only push aside public health authorities, but also bypass the digestive system and often harm the body. For a brief survey of Big Pharma's unhealthy ingredients, here is an article entitled Do You Know What's in a Vaccine? published by LearnTheRisk.org. Aluminum, formaldehyde, MSG, E. coli, and more. As with all pharmaceutical products, it's important to know what exactly you're taking or injecting. Vaccines are no exception. In fact, because vaccines are injected rather than taken orally, it's even more important to know exactly what you're putting in your body. Why? Because science shows that whatever is injected is far more potent than anything ingested. Injections, like vaccines, bypass the body's natural detox pathway. This means more of the injected material in vaccines stays in the body and reaches vital organs and tissues via the bloodstream. This causes both acute and chronic inflammation that leads to many of the health issues that are common nowadays. It can even lead to sudden death. Did your doctor tell you what was in that needle? Unfortunately, vaccine ingredients include many synthetic chemicals that are known to be toxic to humans, as well as foreign human fragments from aborted babies and animal cells and DNA. These ingredients can cause a host of issues, especially when injected. Vaccines can contain aluminum, mercury, formaldehyde, antibiotics, human fetal cells, GMOs, animal proteins, and DNA, glyphosate, and other substances that are potentially dangerous when injected. Vaccines are injected into muscle tissue, where they form a slow-release reservoir intended to stimulate the production of antibodies for some time. The ingredients are not simply flushed out like they might be if taken as food, and some ingredients such as aluminum and mercury make their way to the brain and accumulate over time. Aluminum, known to cause brain damage at all doses, linked to Alzheimer's disease, dementia, seizures, autoimmune issues, SIDS, and cancer. This toxin accumulates in the brain and causes more damage with each dose. Formaldehyde, known to cause cancer in humans, probable gastrointestinal, liver, respiratory, immune, nerve, and reproductive system poison, banned from injectables in most European countries. Beta-propylactone, known to cause cancer, suspected gastrointestinal, liver, nerve, and respiratory skin and sense organ poison. Gentamicin sulfate and polymyxin B antibiotics. Allergic reactions can range from mild to life-threatening. Genetically modified yeast, bacterial and viral DNA, and dairy egg components can be incorporated into the recipient's DNA and cause unknown genetic mutations. This also includes eggs, dairy, this leads to allergies, glutaraldehyde, poisonous if ingested, causes birth defects in animals, latex rubber, can cause life-threatening allergic reactions, peanut and soybean oil, linked to nut and soy allergies, human and animal cells, human DNA from aborted babies, pig blood, horse blood, rabbit brains, dog kidneys, cow hearts, monkey kidneys, chick embryos, 
calf serum, sheep blood, and more. Linked to childhood leukemia and diabetes, mercury, thimerosal, one of the most toxic substances known. Even if a thermometer breaks, the building is cleared and hazmat is called. Tiny doses cause damage to the brain, gut, liver, bone marrow, nervous system, and or kidneys. Linked to autoimmune disorders and neurological disorders like autism. Monosodium glutamate, MSG. A toxic chemical that is linked to birth defects developmental delays and infertility. Banned in Europe, neuromycin sulfate antibiotic interferes with vitamin B6 absorption, which can lead to epilepsy and brain damage. Allergic reactions can range from mild to life-threatening. Phenol, phenoxyethanol, used as antifreeze, toxic to all cells and capable of destroying the immune system. Polysorbate 80 and polysorbate 20, known to cause cancer in animals and and linked to numerous autoimmune issues and infertility. Tributylphosphate, potentially toxic to the kidney and nervous system. Tragically, the eugenic roots of big pharma vaccination are apparent with the sterilizations, the modifications, and the deaths that are repeatedly inflicted upon big pharma's vulnerable subjects. When corrupt governments push for large-scale big pharma vaccine campaigns on vulnerable populations, then those populations are too often sterilized. This has been inflicted upon poor communities in the United States, South America, the Philippines, Thailand, Haiti, Kenya, and on and on it goes. This advances the progress of population control. Fertility is controlled and eradicated from Big Pharma's unsuspecting victims. Those that survive Big Pharma's never-ending germ war experiments are usually transformed into lifelong Big Pharma livestock. If Big Pharma's treasured vaccines are not fatal, then they are gateway poisons that convert healthy children into lifelong Big Pharma customers. These livestock will be useful subjects for future evolutionary designs, dependent on Big Pharma for their physical and mental well-being. Obedient to Big Pharma commandments, those that are killed, devoured by the immunity mirage, are the naturally rejected, acceptable losses for Big Pharma. There are over 400 harmful and lethal risks for those who receive Big Pharma's vaccines. Limiting ourselves to the adverse effects that Big Pharma admits for the measles, rubella, and chickenpox vaccines, we find the following dangers listed in the patient inserts of Big Pharma's safe and effective vaccines. Fever, pain, swelling, itching, swelling of the testicles, joint pain and or swelling, difficulty breathing, wheezing, hives or skin rash, bleeding or bruising under the skin, seizures, severe headache, a change in behavior or consciousness, difficulty walking, chickenpox-like rash on the body or at the site of the shot, irritability, tingling of the skin, shingles, herpes zoster, bruising, red or purple flat pinhead spots under the skin, severe paleness, severe skin disorders, skin infection, chicken pox, swelling of the brain, encephalitis, stroke, inflammation of the coverings of the brain and spinal cord, meningitis, pneumonia, pneumonitis. Listed amongst the potential side effects is the disease itself. 
vaccine recipients shed these genetically modified big pharma vaccine strain diseases. Many outbreaks and complications have spread from those who shed recent big pharma vaccinations. This is why those who receive the chickenpox vaccine are supposed to stay away from the various vulnerable populations. Unfortunately, many of those who administer and receive Big Pharma's safe and effective vaccines are ignorant of these dangers. Rest assured, there's a Big Pharma treatment for the future after effects. Those potential problems from Big Pharma's safe and effective Vaccines are listed with reassurances to the patient that they are no cause for worry. The patient is also informed that there are other potential problems from Big Pharma's safe and effective vaccines. The patient is instructed to follow up with the medical care provider. It is assumed that the doctor will be aware of the longer list of potential problems. This assumption is discordant with the fact that there is little to no vaccine injury training from within the Big Pharma medical establishment. A comprehensive understanding of potential problems that are associated with Big Pharma's safe and effective vaccines is difficult to harmonize with Big Pharma's safe and effective effective, socially engineered chanting. Many of the other problems are found in the package inserts for Big Pharma's safe and effective vaccines. Often, when the patient presents these problems to the medical care provider, the thought that they may be connected to Big Pharma's safe and effective vaccines is never considered or is immediately dismissed. The patient is always reassured, no matter the cost, that Big Pharma's vaccines are safe and effective. The package inserts for measles, rubella, and chickenpox vaccines admit the following dangers. Paniculitis, herpes simplex, herpes zoster, herpes zoster rash, rash, hive-like rash, varicella-like rash, measles-like rash fever, measles inclusion body encephalitis, atypical measles, measles, encephalitis, encephalopathy, subacute sclerosing panencephalitis, acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, syncope, pain, pain of the hip, leg, or neck, musculoskeletal pain, ear pain, abdominal pain, malaise, irritability, vasculitis, pancreatitis, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, parotitis, purpura, henexonline purpura, thrombocytopenia, including idiopathic, thrombocytopenic purpura, vasculitis, regional lymphadenopathy, leukocytosis, anaphylaxis, anaphylaxis, including anaphylactic shock and related phenomena such as angioneurotic edema, anaphylactoid reactions, bronchial spasm, angioedema, peripheral edema, facial edema, edema of the eyelid, acute hemorrhagic edema of infancy, arthritis, arthralgia, myalgia, transverse myelitis, Guillain-Barre syndrome, fibrile convulsions or seizures, afibrile convulsions or seizures, non-fibrile seizures, tremor, ataxia, eye irritation, optic neuritis, retrobulbar, neuritis, polyneuritis, polyneuropathy, ocular palsies, paresthesia, pneumonia, pneumonitis, sore throat, cough, rhinitis, Stevens-Johnson syndrome, erythema multiforme, urticaria, pruritus, swelling, vesiculation, ear nerve deafness, otitis media, retinitis, necrotizing retinitis, Papillitis, conjunctivitis, epididymitis, orchitis, aseptic meningitis, meningitis, infection, respiratory infection, skin infection, secondary bacterial infections of skin and soft tissue, skin induration, impetigo, cellulitis, varicella, influenza, bronchitis, sinusitis, 
candidiasis, aplastic anemia, lymphadenitis, agitation, apathy, nervousness, cerebrovascular accident, Bell's palsy, hypersomnia, periesthesia, extravasation blood, pulmonary congestion, wheezing, epistaxis, hematochesia, mouth ulcer, pharyngitis, headache, dizziness, and last but not least, death. The package inserts are noticeably different than the patient inserts. The patient inserts instruct the patient to report their potential vaccine side effects to their doctor, who will then determine if the harm done to the patient warrants a report to the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. The Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System was established for anyone to submit their report, but in practice the reports are funneled through the doctor. Most patients are kept unaware of this reporting system. It is rare for care providers to consider the connection between their administration of Big Pharma's vaccines and the multitude of Big Pharma's vaccine-related illnesses. These dots are rarely connected because, above all else, we are conditioned to trust that Big Pharma's vaccine Vaccines are safe and effective. The same doctor who gets paid a few hundred dollars from Big Pharma for every fully vaccinated patient under the doctor's care is the doctor who the patient is instructed to report potential vaccine injuries to. The medical care providers are not given any adequate education or training on the dangers of Big Pharma vaccines or how to identify and monitor vaccine injuries. These providers often convince themselves and their patients that their vaccine injuries are not related to the Big Pharma vaccines. This is why the million-dollar Harvard-commissioned internal study of the accuracy of the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System revealed that only 1% of vaccine adverse injuries are reported and 99% remain unreported. When presented with an automated solution to this problem, the public health authorities decided to ignore the solution and maintain the problem. This is one of the many incestuous controls that Big Pharma has established between the Big Pharma medical establishment and the corrupt government that it owns. This is who we are encouraged to trust. Big Pharma, every maker of every vaccine that you have been programmed to zealously embrace. The multiple convicted felon who is repeatedly caught committing scientific fraud and knowingly consigning its victims to death. This is who we are told to trust. The multiple convicted, fraudulent, dangerous, lethal felon who has secured indemnity from the unanimous consensus of legislatures that remain comfortably kept in their stables free from all legal liability. The reign of Big Pharma's terror is immune from any meaningful accountability. Big Pharma-owned media, Big Pharma-owned governments, Big Pharma-owned medical schools, Big Pharma-owned studies, Big Pharma-owned hospitals, Big Pharma-owned care providers, and Big Pharma-owned public health authorities. This is who we are indoctrinated to hand over our lives to. In Big Pharma we trust. Anything contrary is to be dismissed and discarded like the pile of Big Pharma murdered children that the Vatican-approved Pontifical Academy for Life encourages you to passively ignore. Finally, we are waking up to the ancient serpent's deception. We now have eyes to see that the COVID-1984 vaccine, which promises to bring plenty of harm and death to its subjects, is intended for 100% of hell's fools. Satan and his Vatican-approved Big Pharma Sith 
once you all. If everyone is vaccinated, then Big Pharma no longer has to contend with the unvaccinated. Prior to COVID-1984 hysteria, there has been and remains an aggressive attack against philosophical, religious, and medical exemptions from Big Pharma's vaccines. This aggression still swells in the shadows of COVID-1984 lunacy. Overnight, the world revealed that Satan's kingdom is a global union of oppressive governments committed to remaining deaf, dumb, and blind to paradigms that are contrary to their Tower of Babel. Everyone must receive Big Pharma's vaccines. You will be like God if you receive Satan's anti-sacrament. For those harmed and killed along the way, for the greater good, Moloch says, nothing lasts forever. All must obey. In 1985, there was a measles outbreak in Corpus Christi, Texas. That outbreak touched a population that was 99% vaccinated. In 1986, there was a measles outbreak in Dane County, Wisconsin. That outbreak touched a population that was 96% vaccinated. In the year 2000, there was a measles outbreak in Nepal. That outbreak touched a population that was 100% vaccinated. In 2003, there was a measles outbreak in a Pennsylvania population that was 99% vaccinated. Rubella, just like measles and chickenpox, is a mild illness. Rubella can be mistaken for a common cold and often goes undetected. Rubella is very far from being dangerous or lethal. The supposed concern for rubella is based on the potential for harm to the unborn child and the child's mother when rubella leads to congenital rubella syndrome. There is approximately an 8% potential for harm. 92% or more of congenital rubella cases are void of any harm and result in normal healthy births. The rubella vaccine does not prevent congenital rubella syndrome. 1966 is the year that the U.S. government began keeping statistics for congenital rubella syndrome. In 1966, there were 11 cases reported. In 1967, there were 10 cases reported. In 1968, there were 14 cases reported. 1969 was the year that the rubella vaccine was introduced. The CDC recorded 31 cases in 1960. In 1970, there was an even greater increase of 77 cases reported. In 1971, there were 68 cases reported. Each of the following years reported higher numbers than the initial 1966 report. In 1991, there were 47 cases reported. Eventually, in 1992, there were 11 cases reported. In 1992, more than 20 years after the vaccine was introduced, the cases reported finally returned to the 1966 level of 11 cases. Cases of congenital rubella syndrome increased after the vaccine was introduced. The Vatican-approved Pontifical Academy for Life points to rubella as evidence for a moral obligation to be vaccinated. The Pontifical Academy for Life uses rubella to support their pro-Big Pharma vaccines position because congenital rubella syndrome may threaten the life of the unborn child. This is a dishonest and cowardly attempt to manipulate
regulate the issue of grave sins accumulated in association with big pharma vaccines. Unwilling to be manly, unwilling to faithfully stand for God, the Vatican-approved Pontifical Academy for Life chooses to offer their service to Satan's big pharma death cult. In harmony with satanic big pharma tactics, using the unborn child, they cast their spell of delusion to manipulate the faithful into believing big pharma's lies. Big pharma and their death cult vaccines are presented as the miraculous providers of good health for the unborn child. The big pharma vaccine may then be praised for rescuing the unborn child from death and danger. This is the Pontifical Academy for Life's pathetic attempt to consider the life of the unborn child with their shallow concern for congenital rubella syndrome. Keep in mind, the Pontifical Academy for Life was commissioned in 2003 by the Vatican to offer a reflection on the morality of vaccines derived from the bodies of murdered children. Many children are murdered by Big Pharma until Big Pharma finally acquires the useful body parts of one or two murdered children. After many murdered children were discarded for their uselessness, one murdered child was selected for the development of the rubella vaccine. One of the ghouls credited with playing a pivotal role in the invention of the rubella vaccine, Stanley Allen Plotkin, is a proud atheist who is pleased to cleverly express his hatred for God, the Church, and those who faithfully give their lives to God. The rubella vaccine is one of the many vaccines that Mr. Plotkin has been associated with and handsomely rewarded for. Mr. Plotkin is appropriately known as the godfather of vaccines. His book, which he strangely and very mockingly claimed to be more accurate than the Bible, is at the top of the Bill Gates recommended reading list. Mr. Plotkin has admitted to experimenting on vulnerable populations such as orphans, children of mothers in prison, the mentally ill, and close to a million people under colonial rule in the Belgian Congo. This is the man behind the aborted fetal cell vaccine which the Vatican-approved Pontifical Academy for Life recommends for the faithful. Chickenpox is only lethal to rare few adults who never received chickenpox during their childhood. Those adults were deprived of lifelong immunity from chickenpox as nature intended because the chickenpox vaccine prevented the immune development of their evolved society. Since the introduction of vaccines, there has always been a significant army of concerned families who have stood against oppressive governments that seek to force their vaccines into those who do do not consent. In the past, when much more of the population resisted compulsory vaccinations, the goal for artificial herd immunity was 70%, then 80%, and so on it went. As the raid advanced, so too did the goal. All the while, the Big Pharma freeloaders label for those who resist the Big Pharma agenda increases its firepower. The freeloaders term has been updated to selfish for all the COVID-1984 cult followers to think and use against their neighbors. These virtue-signaling, socialist-distancing, godless COVID-1984 cult followers look forward to proudly displaying their vaccinated badges. It would be most fitting for those badges to be displayed on a socialist-engineered armband. The supposed eradication of diseases and infections in the past took place in populations that were well below the 95% mark. 
If a 95% vaccination rate is achieved, then 96% can be the new goal to strive towards. Once 96% is accomplished, then 100% may soon follow. The COVID-1984 pandemonium is designed to achieve this satanic agenda of Big Pharma. The decline in vaccination rates is not an indication of an uninformed public. The decline in vaccination rate is a measure of resistance to the evil deeds of Big Pharma and its harlots. The Pontifical Academy for Life fails to acknowledge that the decrease in vaccination rate is the result of an informed public being compelled to avoid the harmful effects of Big Pharma vaccines. Regrettably, family and friends have become informed through the many injuries and deaths that Big Pharma vaccines have caused. Many parents have reluctantly acknowledged their part in the lifelong damage and murder of their children. Big Pharma is currently obliged, against their own accord, to list on the vaccine inserts the many autoimmune diseases that are caused by their vaccines. The many dangers of Big Pharma vaccines are rarely presented to vaccine recipients. In the past, when recipients were more protected from Big Pharma's wishes, when recipients were honestly informed of the dangers, when they were granted truer consideration of the risk and reward, the vaccination rate was much lower. It is Big Pharma's preferred persuasion tactic which seems to presently dominate societies throughout the world with the disinformation that is now commonly offered to its unsuspecting herd to keep its victims misinformed while harming their health with Big Pharma vaccines. The strong arm of the corrupt government mandates supplement Big Pharma's ineffective and immoral attempts to persuade. The Pontifical Academy for Life's 2017 statement referred to their 2005 document with the following hit-and-run remark. In 2005, the Pontifical Academy for Life published a document entitled Moral Reflections About Vaccines Prepared from Cells of Aborted Human Fetuses, which, in the light of medical advances and current conditions of vaccine preparation, could soon be revised and updated. With their shameful prostitution, revised and updated translates to mean removed from consideration. Presently, regarding the Pontifical Academy for Life's reflection on the morality of Big Pharma vaccines, all that is offered from their website for this issue is their thoughtless 2017 statement. The 2005 document has been removed from consideration, not revised and updated, removed. The Pontifical Academy for Life displays their arrogance by simply erasing the 2005 document from their catalog. Rather than following through with their possibility to soon revise and update their 2005 soft-hearted objection to death cult society, they have lazily exchanged it with their 2017 celebratory participation in death cult society. The sliver of support for the moral conscience of the faithful is to be forgotten. The unscientific, deceptive approval of Big Pharma's vaccines is to be complied with. The message is no longer mixed. The Vatican-approved Pontifical Academy for Life, or more appropriately named the Pontifical Academy for Death, is very clear now with their promotion of Big Pharma's vaccines. Forget your moral conscience and have a bite of that forbidden fruit. Surely you will not die the death, or so the Pontifical Academy for Death would have you believe. These agents of Satan are enemies of the way, the truth, and the life. 
The Pontifical Academy for Death's complacent document entitled Moral Reflections on Vaccines Prepared from Cells Derived from Aborted Fetuses was a mediocre hint of moral courage. This reluctant document was brought to light from a woman's battle against evil. In 2001, Shannon Law, a courageous mother from Arkansas, fought the terror of compulsory vaccination when she discovered that the big pharma vaccines which the state was mandating for her children were derived from the mortal sin of abortion. This faithful mother sought the aid of her local pastor who in turn referred her to diocesan officials. Rather than bold leadership, she was met with a chain of shrugged shoulders. Eventually, she reached out to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and found support from Children of God for Life founder Debiel Venege along the way. Mrs. Venege contributed to this righteous fight against evil with a June 4, 2003 clarification request to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. The Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith passed that request off to the Pontifical Academy for Death. Similar to the first Adam, the Vatican hid in the shadows of the woman. Regarding the law family, along with every other family facing the unjust tyranny of forced vaccination, this was a matter concerning fundamental rights and eternal salvation. The cowardly bishops, the dishonorable clerics, past and present, have hidden from their duty to guard and protect the faith and morals of their vulnerable flock. In their pathetic failure to be manly, they bowed down to the wolves. As we now know, many of them are themselves wolves in shepherd's clothing. Fortunately, though void of any bravery from the unmanly congregation for the doctrine of the faith and their approved pontifical academy for death, Arkansas begrudgingly became one of the few states to allow religious exemptions from mandatory vaccinations. Unfortunately, Big Pharma progressively and very successfully aims to remove all exemptions everywhere through its social engineering campaign of lies and intimidation that culminates in paid-for legislation against the God-given rights of the people. This is Satan's kingdom to control, to feel powerful, to fool yourself into thinking that you are like God, to be enthroned in hell. G.K. Chesterton in his book entitled Eugenics and Other Evils has warned us of these damned fools. The thing that really is trying to tyrannize through government is science. The thing that really does use the secular arm is science. And the creed that really is levying tithes and capturing schools, the creed that really is enforced by fine and imprisonment, the creed that really is proclaimed not in sermons but in statutes and spread not by pilgrims but by policemen, that creed is the great but disputed system of thought which began with evolution and has ended in eugenics. Materialism is really our established church, for the government will really help it to persecute its heretics. Vaccination, in its hundred years of experiment, has been disputed almost as much as baptism in its approximate 2,000. But it seems quite natural to our politicians to enforce vaccination, and it would seem to them madness to enforce baptism. I am not frightened of the word persecution when it is attributed to the churches, nor is it in the least as a term of reproach that I attribute it to the men of science. It is a term of legal fact. 
if it means the imposition by the police of a widely disputed theory incapable of final proof, then our priests are not now persecuting, but our doctors are. The imposition of such dogmas constitutes a state church in an older and stronger sense than any that can be applied to any supernatural church today. There are still places where the religious minority is forbidden to assemble or to teach in this way or that, and yet more where it is excluded from this or that public post. But I cannot now recall any place where it is compelled by the criminal law to go through the right of the official religion. Even the the young Turks did not insist on all Macedonians being circumcised. Compulsory vaccination violates true bodily autonomy and is ironically supported by godless abortion advocates. Consequently, it is a grim likelihood that the United Nations could soon revise and update the moral reflections of their 2005 Universal Declaration on Bioethics and Human Rights. For the record, the first point of Article 6 currently reads as follows. Any preventative, diagnostic, and therapeutic medical intervention is only to be carried out with the prior free and informed consent of the person concerned, based on adequate information. The consent should, where appropriate, be expressed and may be withdrawn by the person concerned at any time and for any reason without disadvantage or prejudice. Such shame that the Vatican is too faithlessly weak to echo this sentiment, let alone illuminate the dark world of Satan's kingdom with the fire of God. Instead, the Vatican cleverly attempts to discourage those who lay their lives down for God and his image by declaring that there is a moral responsibility to vaccinate. This is Antichrist in the truest sense of the word. Such shame that the Vatican sounds more like a godless public health authority and less like Christ. Christ, our King, warned about the millstone. Those who ignore the warnings of God who failed to live the covenant be damned. Debbie Venege's request for the Vatican's support was finally answered in their inadequate 2005 document from the Vatican-approved Pontifical Academy for Death. Though the 2005 document rolled out the typical Big Pharma talking points, it did offer a fragment of truth. It did acknowledge the duty of the faithful to honor their invincible moral conscience. Surprisingly, the 2005 document admits there remains a moral duty to continue to fight and to employ every lawful means in order to make life difficult for the pharmaceutical industries which act unscrupulously and unethically. Not surprisingly, from the other side of their deceitful mouth, much like the overwhelming majority of politicians who claim to stand against the evils of Big Pharma while at the same time offering actual support to the evils of Big Pharma, the Pontifical Academy for Death in its follow-on sentence states, The burden of this important battle cannot and must not fall on innocent children and on the health situation of the population, especially with regard to pregnant women. Be not afraid to reflect upon the Vatican's embarrassing adultery. Christ remains our King, our faithful Bridegroom. The Church remains His Queen, His spotless Bride. Reflect upon the cockle that has infiltrated the King's field. This infiltration of God's temple has existed from the original sin to Judas's guilt of the body and of the blood of the Lord to the present smoke of Satan pervading the Vatican and scourging Christ's body. Fear not this 
this evil pestilence. For God the Son remains our physician. We are blessed with the provision of God the Holy Ghost. God the Almighty Father's will be done as we correspond to the life of God's Holy Trinity. This is the holy faith given to us from God. We rejoice in the footsteps of Christ as we deliver ourselves up to participation in the completion of his redemptive suffering. In Christ there is no fear. If God be for us, who is against us? We look upon the face of Satan that we may beat it with our fists and strike as we can. Steal yourself. Remain vigilant or be devoured. The final law which punctuates the Catholic Church's current code of canon law is essential to an honest reflection on the criminal failure of the Church's idle clerics. Canon Law 1752 states, The salvation of souls, which must always be the supreme law in the Church, is to be kept before one's eyes. Before examining the crimes of Judas shepherds and of their tainted sheep, it will be fitting to continue our reflection of the Church's lies that have been commissioned to enable Satan's malice. With watchful eyes, we labor as a good soldier of Christ. After the Pontifical Academy for Death did the Vatican's bidding concerning the approval of Satan's anti-sacrament, the Vatican wrote to a good, faithful, and true soldier of Christ. From Vatican City, June 9, 2005. Dear Mrs. Deborah L. Venedge, on June 4, 2003, you wrote to His Eminence Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger with a copy of this letter forwarded to me, asking to the Sacred Congregation of the Doctrine of Faith a clarification about the laicity of vaccinating children with vaccines prepared using cell lines derived from aborted human fetuses. Your question regarded in particular the right of the parents of these children to oppose such a vaccination when made at school mandated by law. As there were no formal guidelines by the magisterium concerning that topic, you said that Catholic parents were often challenged by state courts, health officials, and school administrators when they filled religious exemptions for their children to this type of vaccination. This Pontifical Academy for Life, carrying out the commission entrusted to us by the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, in answer to your request, has proceeded to a careful examination of the question of these tainted vaccines, and has produced as a result a study in Italian that has been realized with the help of a group of experts. This study has been approved as such by the congregation, and we send you, there enclosed, an English translation of a synthesis of this study. This synthesis can be brought to the knowledge of the interested officials and organisms. A documented paper on the topic will be published in the journal Medicina e Morale, edited by the Centra di Bioteca della Università Cattolica in Rome. The study is synthesis and the translation of this material took some time. We apologize for the delay. Moral reflections on vaccines prepared from cells derived from aborted human fetuses The matter in question regards the lawfulness of production, distribution and use of certain vaccines, whose production is connected with acts of procured abortion. It concerns vaccines containing live viruses which have been prepared from human cell lines of fetal origin, using tissues from aborted human fetuses as a source of such cells. The best known, and perhaps the most important due to its vast distribution and its use on an almost universal level, is the vaccine against rubella, German measles. Rubella and its vaccine rubella, German measles is a viral illness caused by a virus of the genus Rubivirus and is characterized by a maculopapular rash. 
It consists of an infection which is common in infancy and has no clinical manifestations in one case out of two, is self-limiting and usually benign. Nonetheless, the German measles virus is one of the most pathological infective agents for the embryo and fetus. When a woman catches the infection during pregnancy, especially during the first trimester, the risk of fetal infection is very high, approximately 95%. The virus replicates itself in the placenta and infects the fetus, causing the constellation of abnormalities denoted by the name of congenital rubella syndrome. For example, the severe epidemic of German measles which affected a huge part of the United States in 1964 thus caused 20,000 cases of congenital rubella, resulting in 11,250 abortions, spontaneous or surgical, 2,100 neonatal deaths, 11, 600 cases of deafness, 3,580 cases of blindness, 1,800 cases of mental retardation. It was this epidemic that pushed for the development and introduction on the market of an effective vaccine against rubella, thus permitting an effective prophylaxis against this infection. The severity of congenital rubella and the handicaps which it causes justify systematic vaccination against such a sickness. It is very difficult, perhaps even impossible, to avoid the infection of a pregnant woman, even if the rubella infection of a person in contact with this woman is diagnosed from the first day of the eruption of the rash. Therefore, one tries to prevent transmission by suppressing the reservoir of infection among children who have not been vaccinated, by means of early immunization of all children, universal vaccination. Universal vaccination has resulted in a considerable fall in the incidence of congenital rubella, with a general incidence reduced to less than 5 cases per 100,000 live births. Nevertheless, this progress remains fragile. In the United States, for example, after an overwhelming reduction in the number of cases of congenital rubella to only a few cases annually, i.e. less than 0. 1 per 100,000 live births, a new epidemic wave came on in 1991, with an incidence that rose to 0 0.8 100,000. Such waves of resurgence of German measles were also seen in 1997 and in the year 2000. These periodic episodes of resurgence make it evident that there is a persistent circulation of the virus among young adults, which is the consequence of insufficient vaccination coverage. The latter situation allows a significant proportion of vulnerable subjects to persist, who are a source of periodic epidemics which put women in the fertile age group who have not been immunized at risk. Therefore, the reduction to the point of eliminating congenital rubella is considered a priority in public health care. Where does that 20,000 number come from? That number seems so big, so important. It seems like that number should make us care. It seems like it would be cruel for us not to care about 20,000 children. Don't we care about the unborn child? Don't we care about that child's mother? That 20,000 number usually does what it is intended to do. Who intends that number? Where does it come from? There is no authoritative source in 1964. There is no authoritative source in 1965. There is no authoritative source for a total count of congenital rubella syndrome cases until 1966. 1966 is the year that the United States government began keeping statistics for congenital rubella syndrome. The earliest reference for that 20,000 number is a 1984 article entitled The Opportunity and Obligation to Eliminate Rubella from the United States, written by Walter Orenstein. Walter Orenstein happened to be the director of the United States National Immunization Program. Walter Orenstein's job was to promote vaccination. Orenstein created the 20,000 number 20 years after 1964, in the midst of the United States National Immunization Program's big push for the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. Another obvious example of the incestuous relationship between Big Pharma and corrupt government. 
Orenstein's article is no longer cited when the 20,000 number is trotted out for the interests of Big Pharma. That reference stays hidden in the shadows. All that is needed is the magical adjective estimated, used by all the magical health authorities. 20,000 is the number they've settled on to suit Big Pharma's purpose. If we were to accept this arbitrary number as a proven fact, which it is not, then knowing that 92% of congenital rubella syndrome cases result in normal, healthy births should lead us to conclude that of those 20,000 cases, there were 1,600 that may have been detrimental to the health and well-being of the child and mother. That is not the picture that is painted. We are left to ponder 11,250 abortions, spontaneous or surgical, 2,100 neonatal deaths, 11,600 cases of deafness, 3,580 cases of blindness, 1,800 cases of mental retardation. These unrelated scores carry more weight for Big Pharma's vaccination campaigns than a more consistent accounting of the actual impact from a supposed 20,000 cases. The true figure of congenital rubella cases was more likely to have been less than 200, as the subgroup of congenital rubella syndrome cases were typically 1 in 1,000 of rubella cases. Cases, and rubella cases were typically 1 in 1,000 of the population. The United States population in 1964 was under 192 million. 192 million divided by 1,000 equals 192,000. 192,000 divided by 1,000 equals 192. A figure less than 200 is more coherent with the available data that is not driven by the agenda of Big Pharma, and would explain why there is no historical record from the 1960s that notes a large-scale outbreak of congenital rubella syndrome. The 20,000 number was created to deceive. The Pontifical Academy for Death uses the 20,000 number to further the deception. It should be clearly affirmed with the fire of God that the grave evil of abortion derived vaccines and the mortal sin of anyone who refuses to set themselves apart from it can never be morally acceptable by any calculation of numbers. If the entire world were to be infected by congenital rubella syndrome and every future birth resulted in the death of mother and child, then the abortion-derived vaccine and those who refused to set themselves apart from it would be no less evil. The clever idea of remote material cooperation with intrinsically evil vaccines is an equivocation to nurture the cowardice of sniveling weaklings. The material that deserves consideration is not remote to God. God knows the name of his murdered child. God knows the names of all those who have no ears to hear the cry of his precious child. God sees through the complacency of the Judas Catholics who enable the trafficking of murdered children. The only acceptable consideration of numbers ought to be for the strict purpose of striking a blow to Satan and his minions. We all deserve to die. All are worthy of hell. God gives his life to us. Justice demands that we fight for God, that we cherish his image, that we lay our lives down for God, through, with, and in God's redemptive suffering.
Our straight and narrow path is the same path that ancient living saints were called to walk. Saint Athanasius reminds us of our faith. May this reminder set us apart from the heresy of modernism and direct us towards God. Before the divine sojourn of our Savior, even the holiest of men were afraid of death and mourned the dead as those who perish. But now that the Savior has raised his body, death is no longer terrible, but all those who believe in Christ tread it underfoot as nothing and prefer to die rather than to deny their faith in Christ, knowing full well that when they die they do not perish but live indeed and become incorruptible through the resurrection. Even children hasten to die, and not men only, but women train themselves by bodily discipline to meet it. So weak has death become that even women who used to be taken in by it mock at it now as a dead thing robbed of all its strength. Therefore, the reduction to the point of eliminating congenital rubella is considered a priority in public health care. Vaccines currently produced using human cell lines that come from aborted fetuses. Finally, after enduring Big Pharma's propaganda preface, the Pontifical Academy for Death decides to reflect upon the moral issues of vaccines derived from murdered children. Vaccines currently produced using human cell lines that come from aborted fetuses to date. There are two human diploid cell lines which were originally prepared from tissues of aborted fetuses, in 1964 and 1970, and are used for the preparation of vaccines based on live attenuated virus. The first one is the WI-38 line, Wistar Institute 38, with human diploid lung fibroblasts, coming from a female fetus that was aborted because the family felt they had too many children. It was prepared and developed by Leonard Hayflick in 1964 and bears the ATCC number CCL-75. WI-38 has been used for the preparation of the historical vaccine RA.2-7-3 against rubella. The second human cell line is MRC-5 Medical Research Council 5, human, lung, embryonic, with human lung fibroblasts coming from a 14-week male fetus aborted for psychiatric reasons from a 27-year-old woman in the UK MRC-5 was prepared and developed by J.P. Jacobs in 1966. Other human cell lines have been developed for pharmaceutical needs, but are not involved in the vaccines actually available. There is a clear message of there being only two murdered children to be considered in the Pontifical Academy for Death's moral reflections on vaccines prepared from cells derived from aborted human offspring. For some perverted reason, the Pontifical Academy for Death notes the motivation behind the murder of these young ones. The Pontifical Academy for Death informs us that one child was murdered because the family felt they had too many children. This assumption relies on Big Pharma's ability to disclose the truth and is therefore an irrational assumption. Suspending disbelief for the moment, if we assume this circumstance to be authentic, then we should recall to mind that this exact same motivation was the lie that the genocidal white supremacist, Margaret Sanger, declared to be the catalyst for establishing Planned Parenthood. The other murdered child that the Pontifical Academy for Death is willing to reflect upon is said to have been brutally mutilated for psychiatric reasons of the mother. We should also recall that psychiatric reasons was the common excuse for Big Pharma's countless executions of the feeble-minded mother's young ones. 
The children of unwed mothers were systematically preyed upon by Big Pharma. Many of those unwed mothers were vulnerable prostitutes, unwed mothers exploited by Big Pharma to obtain potential specimens for profane experimentation and cruel production of esteemed vaccines. These abominations against God were committed for the Big Pharma medical condition of psychiatric reasons. The years of these murders are noted as well. The distant years do not erase the present issue. The present issue is vaccines derived from murdered children. Were the vaccines derived six decades ago or six hours ago matters not in the faithful's moral reflections on vaccines prepared from murdered children. Portions of these murdered children's bodies presently remain in the vaccines. The faithful are obligated to reckon with this grave sin. The situation is morally equal to considering injecting oneself with a bit of a murdered child's blood for the wishful intent to avoid suffering. The age of that child's blood does not make the act any less grievous. Imagine that the child was murdered much more distant in time. Imagine that the murder murder took place thousands of years ago rather than decades ago. Imagine that the blood was preserved from a child's sacrifice to Moloch. That demonic murder could never be distant enough for you to innocently inject its bloodshed into your body. Most certainly not for the purpose of Big Pharma vaccinations. Perpetuating the utilitarian use of that poor child would be your immediate guilt. Your immediate guilt would be the demonic desecration of God's image. This guilt would be a present assertion of hell. Here is a brief summary of the bloodshed which we are reflecting upon. What they were doing to ensure the organs would be intact was what is called prostaglandin abortions. They would inject a substance into the womb. The woman would then go into mini labor and pass the baby. 50% of the time the baby would be born alive, but that didn't stop them. They would just simply open up the abdomen of the baby with no anesthesia and take out the liver and kidneys, etc. Such evil can never be made good under any circumstance. Such extraordinary evil most certainly commands extraordinary martyrdom. Other human cell lines have been developed for pharmaceutical needs, but are not involved in the vaccines actually available. Two other human cell lines that are permanent, HEK293 aborted fetal cell line, from primary human embryonic kidney cells transformed by sheared adenovirus type 5, the fetal kidney material was obtained from an aborted fetus, in 1972 probably, and PERZ6, a fetal cell line created using retinal tissue from an 18-week gestation aborted baby, have been developed for the pharmaceutical manufacturing of adenovirus vectors, for gene therapy. They have not been involved in the making of any of the attenuated live viruses vaccines presently in use because of their capacity to develop tumorigenic cells in the recipient. However some vaccines, still at the developmental stage, against Ebola virus, Cruchelm.v. and the Vaccine Research Center of the National Institutes of Health Allergy and Infectious Diseases, NIAID, HIV, Merck, Influenza, Metalmune, Sanofi Pasteur, Japanese Encephalitis, Crucial NV and Rhine Biotech NV, are prepared using P. ERC6 cell line, Crucial NV, 
Leiden, the Netherlands. The beastly, dangerous, and lethal COVID-1984 vaccine, which the Vatican is proud to promote, will be derived from the HEK-293 murdered child cell line. HEK-293PERC6 and all the evil ingredients of Big Pharma's vaccines are portions of the ongoing accumulative sin that we are encouraged to consume. We are deceived with Leviathan and intimidation to believe that the serpentine poison is good to eat and fair to the eyes and delightful to behold. The Pontifical Academy for Death is dishonest in their 2017 statement which reads, it should be noted that today it is no longer necessary to obtain cells from new voluntary abortions and that the cell lines on which the vaccines are based in are derived solely from two fetuses originally aborted in the 1960s. The Vatican was aware and is aware that murder-derived vaccines were and continually remain in the developmental stage, that these big pharma vaccines were and still are developed from much more than two murdered children. The Vatican is aware that the usefulness of these murdered children eventually depletes and needs to be replaced with a mass murder quest for the next evil ingredient of the next evil vaccine. The Vatican is aware that that Big Pharma has no interest in abandoning this evil. How did the Vatican oppose these atrocities? How is the Vatican resisting this death cult science? However, some vaccines, still at the developmental stage, against Ebola virus, HIV, influenza, Japanese encephalitis are prepared using PERC6 cell line. The vaccines that are incriminated today as using human cell lines from aborted fetuses, WI38 and MRC5, are the following. The unmanly Pontifical Academy for Death goes on to present a list of Big Pharma vaccines and displays their ability to access information about Big Pharma's evil industry. We will jump ahead in this Pontifical Academy for Death document. You may read the full text and view an updated vaccine chart at cogforlife.org. C-O-G-F-O-R-L-I-F-E dot org. Cogforlife.org. The vaccine chart tracks Big Pharma's expanding list of vaccines derived from murdered children that are currently being administered. From the point of view of prevention of viral diseases such as German measles, mumps, measles, chicken pox and hepatitis A, it is clear that the making of effective vaccines against diseases such as these, as well as their use in the fight against these infections, up to the point of eradication, by means of an obligatory vaccination of all the population at risk, undoubtedly represents a milestone in the secular fight of man against infective and contagious diseases. However, as the same vaccines are prepared from viruses taken from the tissues of fetuses that had been infected and voluntarily aborted, and the viruses were subsequently attenuated and cultivated from human cell lines which come likewise from procured abortions, they do not cease to pose ethical problems. The need to articulate a moral reflection on the matter in question arises mainly from the connection which exists between the vaccines mentioned above and the procured abortions from which biological material necessary for their preparation was obtained. If someone rejects every form of voluntary abortion of human fetuses, would such a person not contradict himself herself by allowing the use of these vaccines of live attenuated viruses on their children? Would it not be a matter of true, and illicit, cooperation in evil, even though this evil was carried out 40 years ago? 
Before proceeding to consider this specific case, we need to recall briefly the principles assumed in classical moral doctrine with regard to the problem of cooperation and evil, a problem which arises every time that a moral agent perceives the existence of a link between his own acts and a morally evil action carried out by others. Big Pharma has lied to you. The Pontifical Academy for Death echoes these lies. In the past, we improved the conditions that illnesses appeared from. When the conditions were improved, God willing, the illnesses disappeared. Big Pharma has rewritten the history of diseases and has manipulated the masses into worshipping their death cult science. Reject Big Pharma's false paradigm. Seek the truth. The same manipulation that took place to convince people that cigarettes are healthy is the manipulation convincing people that Big Pharma vaccines are safe and effective. The Pontifical Academy for Death endorses the lies of Big Pharma by giving the credit that nutrition and sanitation deserves to forced vaccination campaigns. The Pontifical Academy for Death describes the evils of Big Pharma as a milestone in the secular fight of man against infective and contagious diseases. The Pontifical Academy for Death does their best to make the murder of children less repulsive. We will jump ahead to avoid the weeds of their intellectual yoga. Firstly, one must consider morally illicit every form of formal cooperation, sharing the evil intention, in the action of those who have performed a voluntary abortion, which in turn has allowed the retrieval of fetal tissues, required for the preparation of vaccines. Therefore, whoever regardless of the category to which he belongs cooperates in some way, sharing its intention, to the performance of a voluntary abortion with the aim of producing the above-mentioned vaccines, participates, in actuality, in the same moral evil as the person who has performed that abortion. Such participation would also take place in the case where someone, sharing the intention of the abortion, refrains from denouncing or criticizing this illicit action, although having the moral duty to do so, passive formal cooperation. In a case where there is no such formal sharing of the immoral intention of the person who has performed the abortion, any form of cooperation would be material, with the following specifications. As regards the preparation, distribution and marketing of vaccines produced as a result of the use of biological material whose origin is connected with cells coming from fetuses voluntarily aborted, such a process is stated, as a matter of principle, morally illicit, because it could contribute in encouraging the performance of other voluntary abortions, with the purpose of the production of such vaccines. Nevertheless, it should be recognized that, within the chain of production distribution marketing, the various cooperating agents can have different moral responsibilities. However, there is another aspect to be considered, and that is the form of passive material cooperation which would be carried out by the producers of these vaccines, if they do not denounce and reject publicly the original immoral act, the voluntary abortion, and if they do not dedicate themselves together to research and promote alternative ways, exempt from moral evil, for the production of vaccines for the same infections. Such passive material cooperation, if it should occur, is equally illicit. As regards those who need to use such vaccines for reasons of health, it must be emphasized that, apart from every form of formal cooperation, in general, doctors or parents who resort to the use of these vaccines for their children, in spite of knowing their origin, voluntary abortion, carry out a form of very remote immediate material cooperation, and thus very mild, in the performance of the original act of abortion, and immediate material cooperation, with regard to the marketing of cells coming from abortions, and immediate, with regard to the marketing of vaccines produced with such cells. The cooperation is therefore more intense on the part of the authorities and national health systems that accept the use of the vaccines. However, in this situation, the aspect of passive cooperation is that which stands out most. It is up to the faithful and citizens of upright conscience, fathers of families, doctors, etc., to oppose, even by making an objection of conscience, the ever more widespread attacks against life and the culture of death which underlies them.
From this point of view, the use of vaccines whose production is connected with procured abortion constitutes at least immediate remote passive material cooperation to the abortion, and an immediate passive material cooperation with regard to their marketing. Furthermore, on a cultural level, the use of such vaccines contributes in the creation of a generalized social consensus to the operation of the pharmaceutical industries which produce them in an immoral way. Therefore, doctors and fathers of families have a duty to take recourse to alternative vaccines, if they exist, putting pressure on the political authorities and health systems so that other vaccines without moral problems become available. They should take recourse, if necessary, to the use of conscientious objection with regard to the use of vaccines produced by means of cell lines of aborted human fetal origin. Equally, they should oppose by all means, in writing, through the various associations, mass media, etc. The vaccines which do not yet have morally acceptable alternatives, creating pressures so that alternative vaccines are prepared, which are not connected with the abortion of a human fetus, and requesting rigorous legal control of the pharmaceutical industry producers. As regards the diseases against which there are no alternative vaccines which are available and ethically acceptable, it is right to abstain from using these vaccines if it can be done without causing children, and indirectly the population as a whole, to undergo significant risks to their health. However, if the latter are exposed to considerable dangers to their health, vaccines with moral problems pertaining to them may also be used on a temporary basis. The church hierarchy fails to correct the environmental conditions that allow for vulnerable children to be preyed upon and trafficked through hell. The Pontifical Academy for Death is indirectly offering the Vatican's confession of failure to stand up as spiritual fathers. Their failure to defend, to protect, to lay their lives down. Their failure to reform their corrupted authority. There is no indication of sincere repentance. This Indirect confession of mediocrity is similar to the package insert of a big pharma vaccine. However, if the latter are exposed to considerable dangers to their health, vaccines with moral problems pertaining to them may also be used on a temporary basis. The moral reason is that the duty to avoid passive material cooperation is not obligatory if there is grave inconvenience. Moreover, we find, in such a case, a proportional reason, in order to accept the use of these vaccines in the presence of the danger of favoring the spread of the pathological agent, due to the lack of vaccination of children. This is particularly true in the case of vaccination against German measles. In any case, there remains a moral duty to continue to fight and to employ every lawful means in order to make life difficult for the pharmaceutical industries which act unscrupulously and unethically. However, the burden of this important battle cannot and must not fall on innocent children and on the health situation of the population especially with regard to null pregnant women. To summarize, it must be confirmed that, there is a grave responsibility to use alternative vaccines and to make a conscientious objection with regard to those which have moral problems. As regards the vaccines without an alternative, the need to contest so that others may be prepared must be reaffirmed, as should be the lawfulness of using the former in the meantime in so much as is necessary in order to avoid a serious risk not only for one's own children but also, and perhaps more specifically, for the health conditions of the population as a whole especially for pregnant women. The lawfulness of the use of these vaccines should not be misinterpreted as a declaration of the lawfulness of their production, marketing and use, but is to be understood as being a passive material cooperation and, in its mildest and remotest sense, also active, morally justified as an extreme ratio due to the necessity to provide for the good of one's children and of the people who come in contact with the children, pregnant women. Such cooperation occurs in a context of moral coercion of the conscience of parents, who are forced to choose to act against their conscience or otherwise, to put the health of their children and of the population as a whole at risk. This is an unjust alternative choice, which must be eliminated as soon as possible. Keep watch. Remain vigilant in this hour.
The Vatican was aware and is aware that murder-derived vaccines were and continually remain in the developmental stage, that these big pharma vaccines were and still are developed and derived from much more than two murdered children. The Vatican is aware that the usefulness of these murdered children eventually depletes and needs to be replaced with a mass murder quest for the next evil ingredient of the next evil vaccine. The Vatican is aware that Big Pharma has no interest in abandoning this evil. Big Pharma can abandon this practice, but has no interest in doing so. How did the Vatican oppose these atrocities? How is the Vatican resisting this death cult science? The Vatican offers a handful of morally compromised instructions through the Pope, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and the Pontifical Academy for Death, all of which pay lip service to opposing abortion, but ultimately support Satan's death cult machinations by encouraging the faithful to fulfill the purpose of murder-derived vaccines. Big Pharma murdered children and continues to murder children so that the faithful could consume them. The Vatican instructs us that we have a moral obligation to consume Satan's anti-sacrament. The Vatican is Big Pharma's supportive chaplain. Big Pharma's evil vaccine, Satan's anti-sacrament, is derived from child sacrifice. The Vatican endorses this Big Pharma mammon cow on the basis of public health. Communion with Big Pharma's evil is proclaimed to be good on the basis of public health. Apathetic fig leaves are sewn together to hide the shame, the shame of conforming to the will of Satan and corresponding to the darkness of hell. Immediate, passive, remote material cooperation does not reflect the fire of God. Immediate, passive, remote material cooperation is the mediocre whimper of Satan's harlot. Lucifer's death cult has been trying to steal the fire of God since the division of light from the darkness. The kingdom of hell is built upon the fool's desire to be like God. The fool thinks that God's power is built upon control. This damned attempt to own what only God possesses, this foolish craving for control, is the constant link of the death cult timeline. Moving along the chain from Satan's rebellion to the eugenic tale of evolution, we soon discover the eugenic development of the anti-sacrament, the original temptation, the false promise to control like God. Here is a short history of mandatory vaccination from the book entitled Saying No to Vaccines by Dr. Sherry Tenpenny. The vaccine industry evolved from surprisingly modest origins. When smallpox outbreaks were marching across much of Europe, Englishman Edward Jenner noticed that many milkmaids seemed to escape its ravages. His was a straightforward observation. Milkmaids boasted blemish-free complexions, while smallpox survivors had conspicuous, disfiguring pockmarks. This led to Jenner's deduction that the milkmaids were somehow protected from the disease, perhaps because they had contracted a milder version of the illness known as cowpox from milking the cows. 
1796, Jenner tested this theory by injecting cowpox from a postule on the arm of Sarah Nelms, a milkmaid, into James Phipps, a healthy eight-year-old boy. Phipps was injected over several days, gradually increasing the dosage of each inoculation. Phipps was later exposed to smallpox, and although he became ill, his illness was mild and he made a full recovery. The experiment was considered a success and the seeds of the industry were sown. Down through history, Jenner has been credited as the father of vaccination. The first regulations requiring smallpox vaccination were passed in 1806 in Piombino and Lucca, former Napoleonic principalities now part of Italy. Throughout the ninth century, many European countries passed laws requiring smallpox vaccination. In France, the laws were first applied to university students in 18. By 1902, laws were passed to include the entire country. Anti-vaccination movements present in nearly all European countries tended to be strongest in countries where at least some vaccinations were compulsory. However, enforcement was lax and varied between localities. When mandatory vaccination was implemented in the United Kingdom in the mid-1800s, British Parliament formed the Epidemiological Society of London in 1840 to investigate the effectiveness of vaccination throughout the country. Statistics was an evolving science at the time, and numbers added weighty persuasion to arguments. The society was assigned the task to prove the premise that more unvaccinated persons died from smallpox than those who were vaccinated. Given the bias of the premise, the results were bound to be skewed, and data was substantially distorted to reach the desired conclusion. For example, if a vaccinated person contracted smallpox, the patient was considered unvaccinated. If a vaccinated person died during a bout of smallpox, he was considered improperly vaccinated and was counted among the unvaccinated. Mortality rates were derived from patients who died in hospitals. All who died were considered to be unvaccinated, whether they were vaccinated or not. Most important, persons with mild cases of smallpox who recovered uneventfully, more than 90% of those infected were not included in any of the statistics. Most important, persons with mild cases of smallpox who recovered uneventfully, more than 90% of those infected were not included in any of the statistics. As a result, the numbers were slanted in favor of those who had been vaccinated and the conclusions were used to pass mandatory vaccination requirements. To gain a sense of the mid-1800s when infectious diseases including typhoid, cholera, and yellow fever were the leading causes of death, one also needs to understand the deplorable fragmentation and ineffectiveness of the practice of medicine at the time. Governments had comparatively little involvement in health matters, hospitals were filthy death wards, and few tools existed to combat disease until antibiotics were developed in the 1930s. No standardized medical education was in place, and at least 19 different licensing bodies offered the designation of physician. One could become a medical doctor by attending university, becoming an apprentice, or purchasing the title. Furthermore, treatments were often barbaric. Common practices including the use of leeches, called bloodletting, purges, to include vomiting, and cold water dousing, remedies that often worsened or killed the patient. 
against this backdrop of chaos and futility, the advent of vaccines offered a rallying point for the medical profession. Vaccine proponents argued solely from empirical evidence that inoculation with cowpox protected against smallpox and should be made mandatory for the entire nation. The procedure was promoted as the promise of scientific medicine, the first method to offer a true benefit to patients by stopping the spread of disease. During the first first 50 years of vaccine use, vaccinators were mostly laypersons, clergy, druggists, and midwives. But physicians seeing vaccination as an opportunity to gain financial benefits and professional status argued that vaccination was a medical procedure that should be delivered only through the hands of medical doctors. Physicians in Parliament pushed for government regulations and advocated that vaccination should become a mandatory service of the state. Requiring vaccinations would allow the procedure to become the domain of medical professionals. The first Compulsory Vaccination Act, passed in 1853, became the underpinning upon which the medical profession has been built. The procedure physicians wanted to take control of was offensive. It involved cutting lines in the skin with a surgical instrument and smearing the wound with lymph extracted from cows infected with cowpox. Because person-to-person, -person, also called arm-to-arm -arm vaccination, was considered the best way to promote immunity, a mother was instructed to return to the vaccinator several days after the procedure so that matter from oozing sores could be inserted directly into the arm of her waiting infant. Parents who refused to inoculate their infants could be fined and be required to sell their property at auction if they did not have the funds to pay. If they did not have assets to sell, one parent, generally the father, could be jailed for up to two weeks. It was during this period that medical doctors became the biggest proponents of vaccination. They insisted that mandatory vaccination was the best protection for society and the only means to stop the spread of smallpox. Every unvaccinated person was stigmatized as a potential spreader of disease. The government created registries to ensure that entire communities were vaccinated. No one was allowed to jeopardize the lives of others by refusing to be vaccinated. Parents who refused the vaccine for their children could be fined repeatedly for language that vaccination was necessary to protect children from negligent parents. What was unrecognized then and still little known today is that smallpox infections occurred in varying degrees of severity. The most common form, called ordinary discrete smallpox, occurred in more than 40% of cases. This type of outbreak manifested as a small scattering of postules distributed across the body. The person was marginally ill and required minimal medical care other than adequate hydration and fever control for comfort often maintaining a temperature below 102 degrees Fahrenheit 38.8 degrees Celsius was all that was necessary for full recovery. In response to the often draconian enforcement measures, a grassroots movement coalesced to resist. The British anti-vaccination movement became what is considered by many historians to be the largest medical resistance campaign ever mounted. At the core of the debate were two highly charged yet fundamental 
questions. To what extent should government be allowed to intervene in the health of its citizens? Who actually controls the body? These cornerstone arguments between public health and personal health care choices continue to the present day. Pro and anti-vaccinators had very different ideas about how human bodies worked and how best to safeguard them from disease. Intelligent, devoted, and determined proponents of the anti-vaccination movement succeeded in establishing that opposition to vaccination was not a passing fad. In 1880, J. H. Levy, professor of logic and economics at London's Birkbeck College and editor of the Personal Rights Journal, maintained that compulsory vaccination was a gross and cruel invasion of personal liberty. The laws interfered with the individual's choices for self-governance, eliminated self-determination, and impinged upon personal liberty. Resistance involved rallies, hiding children, and acts of civil disobedience. In 1865, more than 20,000 citizens took to the streets of Leicester for an anti-vaccine demonstration. A wide variety of newsletters and pamphlets provoked heated discussions in the pages of the press. Vaccinators were accused of contaminating the blood with animal material, spreading diseases such as tuberculosis and syphilis. Resistors charged doctors with producing a sicklier population for their own financial gain. Not all clinicians supported vaccination and the practice of alternative medicine evolved in tandem with the vaccination resistance movement. Holistic practitioners viewed the body as a whole and recognized that health came from within. Naturalists were unyielding in their position that injecting the body with viruses, bacteria, and animal matter would not keep humans healthy. It was evident to early alternative practitioners that many died as a result of the contamination. The shared beliefs of anti-vaccinators and holistic practitioners created a synergy that advanced both groups. Resistance to vaccination and the debate over compulsory requirements for work and schools escalated throughout a seven-year debate. In an attempt to resolve the dispute between vaccinators and vaccine resistors, Parliament introduced the Royal Commission on Vaccination in 1889. The commission was charged with investigating the usefulness of vaccination to control the spread of smallpox and was asked to determine if there were other means that could be used to control the infection. Additional tasks included looking into the safety of the vaccine to determine if any changes should be made to compulsory vaccination laws. In seven years, the 13-member commission met 136 times and questioned 187 witnesses, including many supporters and opponents of mandatory vaccination. In the final report issued in 1896, the commission admitted the decreased incidence of smallpox was only partially attributed to vaccination, being careful not to dismiss the contribution of improved sanitation. The commission acknowledged that despite reports to the contrary, the use of arm-to-arm lymph serum inoculation did contribute to the spread of syphilis. As a result of the commission's report, a conscience objection clause was introduced into new legislation that allowed parents to obtain exemption certificates by applying to the local magistrate. As described by Durbank, the conscientious objector was prepared to suffer for his honest belief. 
The conscientious objector was not someone who merely reasoned that vaccination was wrong or one who rejected it because it was incompatible with religious beliefs. The conscientious objector had thoroughly investigated the issue and was neither irrational nor negligent. The conscientious objector was intelligent, loving, and devoted to protecting his children. It was hoped that the new 1898 Compulsory Vaccination Act would resolve the conflict once and for all. However, it proved to be a poor compromise and none were satisfied with the result. Fines were limited but not eliminated for late vaccination. Conscientious objection status was allowed only for a parent or guardian who could prove in front of two justices or two magistrates that his objections were from his conscience. Because the term conscience conscientious objection had not been clearly defined in the act, magistrates could set their own standards, refuse petitions at will, and use the application as a weapon of persecution. By the turn of the century, it was clear that the 1898 Act had not in any way mitigated the opposition to vaccination. Defaulters continued to be prosecuted and fees for exemption certificates were marginally different from the fines issued for not vaccination. As a result, the government again responded with a compromise to the vaccination mandates rather than abolishing them. The 1907 Vaccination Act repealed the requirement that a parent must satisfy a magistrate. Instead, a parent could obtain the exemption certificate by declaring a conscientious objection to vaccination without being questioned or refused. According to the Registrar General's reports, the number of certificates of conscientious objection almost tripled in the first year after the passage of the legislation. The campaign to repeal the Vaccination Acts declined as the number of conscientious objection certificates grew. By 1908, anti-vaccination rhetoric had been mostly silenced by the ability to obtain exemptions. The British government repealed vaccination requirements for smallpox altogether in 1946 because nearly half of parents throughout the country were claiming conscientious exemptions. Vaccination rates fell, and to the dismay of pro-vaccinators, so did the number of smallpox outbreaks. The Big Pharma medical establishment solidified its ownership of the medical professionals and their patients when the Rockefellers and Carnegies forced modern medicine into a compliance system under Big Pharma control. The elite, the evolved eugenicists, with the power of corrupt government behind them, took control of the conversation between doctor and patient. The Hippocratic holistic approach of medicine was excommunicated from the memory of modern man. Medicine was transformed from an allopathic paradigm into a compartmentalized system of dogmatic, corporate mandate. Healing was transformed to warfare. Medicine swallowed by industry was consumed by Satan's craving for conquest. Still, to this day, the inferno rages. Control, control, control. In due course, Alex Carell, Nobel laureate, made his mark on the death cult timeline. Carell was able to keep a chick embryo alive for 34 years. Scientists marveled at this feat. Similar attempts had previously resulted in a nine-year lifespan for the embryo. The embryo was useful for various science experiments. Carell's control of the embryo introduced the idea of the immortal cell. The immortal cell theory was a fountain of youth fantasy. In the snoring brains of modern man, it renewed the dream of forbidden fruit. 
After Alex Carell's death in 1930, we eventually arrive at another scientist named Leonard Hayfleck. Hayfleck did his research with the Wistar Institute. In 1960, Hayfleck produced a cell culture known as WISH. WISH originated from the umbilical cord of Hayfleck's newly born daughter, Susan Hayfleck, hence the name WISH, Wistar Institute Susan Hayfleck. Hayflick went on to develop the theory which concludes that the cell has a lifespan based on the stage of its owner. With the immortal cell theory in rear view, Hayflick looked ahead. Hayflick put his new theory into practice with his experimentation on the body parts of murdered babies. Hayflick's experiments required more and more murdered children. Hayflick notably offered his grateful acknowledgement to Merck Pharmaceutical for providing the murdered offspring for his research. These Experiments laid the groundwork for Big Pharma's expanding safe and effective murder-derived vaccines. The death cult elite cannot restrain themselves from prophesying the victory of their war. They have sung their foolish song throughout the ages. Celebrated academic Bertrand Russell was a pop star marionette of the death cult elite. Russell repeatedly exposed the controls hidden behind the eugenic curtain. In the midst of Carell and Hayfleck, with his 1952 masterwork entitled The Impact of Science on Society, Russell shared his prediction of an evolved new world order. Unguarded, he explained the death cult ethos which has manifested itself into the present COVID-1984 pandemic. Although this science will be diligently studied, it will be rigidly confined to the governing class. The populace will not be allowed to know how its convictions were generated. When the technique has been perfected, every government that has been in charge of education for a generation will be able to control its subjects securely without the need of armies or policemen. Scientific societies are as yet in their infancy. It is to be expected that advances in physiology and psychology will give governments much more control over individual mentality than they now have even in totalitarian countries. Diet, injections, and injunctions will combine from a very early age to produce the sort of character and the sort of beliefs that the authorities consider desirable, and any serious criticism of the powers that be will become psychologically impossible. When the government controls the distribution of food, its power is absolute so long as they can count on the police and the armed forces, and their loyalty can be secured by giving them some of the privileges of the governing class. I do not see how any internal movement of revolt can ever bring freedom to the oppressed in a modern scientific dictatorship. I do not pretend that birth control is the only way in which population can be kept from increasing. There are others which, one must suppose, opponents of birth control would prefer. War, as I remarked a moment ago, has hitherto been disappointing in this respect, but perhaps bacteriological war may prove more effective. There are three ways of securing a society that shall be stable as regards population. The first is that of birth control, the second that of infanticide, or really destructive wars, and the third that of general misery except for a powerful minority.
The need for a world government, if the population problem is to be solved in any humane manner, is completely evident on Darwinian principles. A society is not stable unless it is on the whole satisfactory to the holders of power, and the holders of power are not exposed to the risk of successful revolution. As regards population, to deal with this problem, it will be necessary to find ways of preventing an increase in world population. If this is to be done otherwise than by wars, pestilence, and famines, it will demand a powerful international authority. This authority should deal out the world's food to the various nations in proportion to their population at the time of the establishment of the authority. If any nation subsequently increased its population, it should not on that account receive any more food. The motive for not increasing population would therefore be very compelling. There is an ongoing chant that plagues godless societies. Human beings are a virus to the planet. Population control is the answer. The dark mantra spreads to the youngest generation so that the rulers may conveniently herd and manage the ruled to the satisfaction of the evolved elite. As the COVID-1984 myth spread across the globe, the New World Order stepped out from the shadows, manifestly revealing that the people are not governed by leaders of goodwill. It is apparent for those with eyes to see that the people are ruled by authorities of public health control. These rulers follow Satan's big pharma biddings. Satan doesn't mind if you say, Lord, Lord, Christ Jesus, my Savior, just as long as Christ is not the king of your life and your society. Satan doesn't mind if you believe in God, just as long as your faith is void of meaningful consequence. Satan will not lead the Christian to hell with honest persuasion. The deceiver will usher the Christian into hell with Christian-flavored poison. Christianity with a subtle twist of hell. Satan delights in perversion, in infiltrating God's house and puppeteering unmanly shepherds. Satan is pleased when the Vatican calls evil good and good evil. You are welcome to wave the banner of Christianity in Satan's kingdom, just as long as you are not set apart from the world, the flesh, and the devil. As long as you remain under the control of Satan's lies, Satan is pleased when you declare those lies to be Christian truth. The more twisted, the better. The institutional rape and molestation of our children becomes a matter of isolated abuses against minors, solved by the laity's prayers and mammon. These are not the lies of wolves in shepherds' clothing. These are the transparent good intentions of the church's princes. These are not the copy-and-paste jingle-jangle sidesteps of neglectful clerics. These are well-meaning wishes of pro-life bishops, good versus evil becomes a matter of immediate passive remote material cooperation versus immediate formal illicit cooperation. This is not a consideration of evil big pharma's vaccines derived from murdered children, children sacrificed for the god of modernism, for the god of Moloch. This is a reflection of moral dispensation for the faithful who are obligated to fulfill trustworthy big pharma's humanitarian purpose. 
The Christian costume is very useful to Satan. It helps convert the sheep into wolves. Without pop Christian sentiment, the most unholy anti-sacrament could not maintain the Vatican's stamp of approval. The Vatican's adultery with Satan's big pharma is a dangerous and deadly infestation. It spreads beyond dishonest manipulation. By God's grace, may we rise to our feet and stand with Joshua as we examine the cockle. You may recall that the Vatican has been caught up in several scandals involving the Dermatopathic Institute of the Immaculate. Dermatopathic Institute of the Immaculate, which is referred to by the abbreviation IDI, is the hospital and research center under the care of the Sons of the Immaculate Conception. The following is an article published in Union of Catholic Asian News entitled, Priests Sell Cosmetics to Help Disabled. Father Andrew Choi Young, 40, has an unusual sideline. He is the president of a cosmetics company that he and his fellow religious priests and brothers started to help fund their charitable work. Father Choi's Rome-based congregation of the Sons of the Immaculate Conception came to Korea in 1996. Their pastoral work went into full swing in 2003 after they established a residence and rehabilitation center for about 60 mentally disabled people, a retreat center, and a counseling office in Suwon, south of Seoul. The congregation now has five priests and six brothers in Korea. Setting up the charitable facilities was costly. We got into debt, said Father Choi. Despite supporters' help, we needed more money. That was when he decided to draw on the unique strengths of his international congregation, its expertise in the field of dermatology and the manufacture of skin care products by confreres in Rome to set up a cosmetic company in Korea. The plan was approved by Father Choi's superiors. The cosmetics trade under the brand IDI, named after the congregation's skin hospital in Rome, the Institute Dermatopathic Immaculate IDI produces a range of products from cleansing creams to anti-aging creams and soaps for problem skin. Now that we raise half of the funds for our activities from the cosmetics business and thanks to the recommendations of customers, our products are selling well, Father Choi said. However, he admits it has taken time for the business to take off. At first, being a priest was a disadvantage, he says. People think that religious priests should be devoted to prayers. It was also a challenge to learn new skills in distribution, sales, and marketing. We were beginners to the cosmetics business. But Father Choi and his confreres pressed on with the help of sympathetic business people and customers' recommendations. In the end, the products started selling well. Our products are somewhat expensive, Father Choi admitted, but IDI is famous for its quality in Europe and we enjoy the confidence of our customers. We visit parishes on Sundays and other special events for the sale and promotion of our cosmetics. We also sell them through the internet and over the phone, he said. One keen customer, Francesca Kim Hoyoung, a 34-year-old housewife, began as a skeptic. At first, I just bought the products to help the priests to care for the disabled people, but now I buy them regularly and recommend them to others, she shared. I had severely dry skin and other cosmetics made the condition worse, but the IDI products improved my condition. I now feel better. I also use their eye cream that helps with the wrinkles 
at the corner of my eyes. The Sons of the Immaculate Conception Congregation was founded by Blessed Luigi Monti in Rome in 1857, and its main pastoral focus is helping the poor and sick. Father Choi is proud of his congregation's achievements in Korea so far, but says there is more work to be done. We are winning the public's recognition and will try to introduce more products for Koreans suffering from skin problems. However, he stressed that the congregation will continue with our activities of helping sick people according to our charism. Notice the abnormalities that are captured in that article. It is presented as a reasonable chain of events that turned a religious order into a cosmetics company. However, the article unintentionally reveals the disorder of these clerics. The wish formula is the magic ingredient to the IDI cosmetic line. The congregation of the Sons of the Immaculate Conception sell these wishful beauty products to fund their charism of service to the poor. These products remain indistinguishable from other secular cosmetic lines. Perhaps their response to this observation might be the echoed remark from one of Christ's original disciples. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? There is no trace of the product's Catholic roots or its charity for the poor. The news article intends to show that Father Choi and the Sons of the Immaculate Conception are giving glory to God by selling high-priced makeup. Wish marketing hides God from view. If the news article accurately read the pulse of the IDI cosmetic company, then we might expect them to offer a fruit to the cosmetics marketplace that is more than an empty wish. The IDI has failed to stand apart from the world even after the Vatican officially took ownership of it in 2013. Being well aware of the IDI's moral corruption, the Vatican failed to ensure its reform. This apparent indifference to Christ's sheep is another shameful display of the Vatican's ongoing mediocrity. The Vatican has its eyes set on the Great Reset, the inclusive global economy, the New World Order, the spirit of Antichrist, but remains blind to the Church's Christ-mandated mission. The Vatican continues to deprive the faithful of truthful worship, continues to enable and encourage sexual perversion, continues to undermine the family. When the sacraments are most needed, the Pope and his fellow faithless bishops have withheld them from Christ's flock. They have received monitoring reward from Antichrist governments in return. Serving the Church as though it were a man-made institution, the bishops have accepted their pieces of silver to replace what was lost from their child-rape syndicate fallout. The Vatican is not a trustworthy guide for faith and morals. If the Vatican is willing to instruct the faithful to passively cooperate with Big Pharma's evil, then the Vatican will likely disown the sinking debt of their urgent need for repentance and penance. As more light is shed upon this moral depravity of the Vatican, it will become clear that the conflicts of interest prevent the Vatican from offering any credible guidance regarding the grave sin of murder-derived vaccines. Along with the multiple scandals tied to the Dermatopathic Institute of the Immaculate, the IDI lays claim to being the birthplace of the WISH formula and is also credited for various experiments with HEK-293.
In light of the murdered child being repeatedly used by the Vatican Research Center, it is reasonable to suspect that all current and future Vatican hospitals, research centers, and drug labs will not prohibit the use of other murdered children. The Pontifical Academy for Death would do best to repent and renounce its chains to Big Pharma. Instead, with the Vatican's support, they remain slaves to the devil. The following examples are seven published research papers. Number one, the Equine Herpivirus 2E1 Open Reading Frame Encodes a Functional Chemokine Receptor. Journal of Virology, December 1999. Number two, an integrated approach for experimental target identification of hypoxia-induced MIR210. The Journal of Biological Chemistry, December 2009. Number three, Nutrient Withdrawal Rescues Growth Factor Deprived Cells from MTOR-Dependent Damage, Aging, August 2010. Number four, Proteolytic Activation Cascade of the Netherton Syndrome Defective Protein, LEKTI, in the Epidermis Implications for Skin Homeostasis, Journal of Investigated Dermatology, June 2011. Number 5. P63 Microrna Feedback and Keratinocyte Senescence, PNAS, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, January 2012. Number 6. Kenlin 1 Regulates Integrin Dynamics and Adhesion Turnover, PLOSONE, June 2013. Number 7. MIR200-alpha modulates the expression of the DNA repair protein OGG1 playing a role in aging of primary human keratinocytes, oxidative medicine and cellular longevity, March 2018. These studies have Vatican support behind them. Various experiments with HEK-293 were funded and conducted by Vatican entities. All of these studies use HEK-293. The death cult experiments found in these papers were conducted in Vatican-owned laboratories. The Vatican owns these sins. The bloody hands of their godless experiments cannot be cleansed by the waters of Caesar. LiveAction.org offers a guide to human fetal cell lines from aborted children used in vaccine development, in which we find the following information about HEK-293. HEK-293 was derived from the kidney of an aborted baby in the Netherlands in the 1970s. According to Courthouse News, the original cells were transformed and immortalized in January 1973 by a young Canadian postdoc by the name of Frank Graham, who was working at the time in Leiden, the Netherlands, in the laboratory of Professor Alex van der Ebb. Normally, a cell has a finite number of divisions, but Graham managed to modify these cells so that they divided ad infinitum. This was his 293rd experiment, hence the name of the line. HEK stands for Human Embryonic Kidney Cells. A transcript of a May 2001 committee of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee quotes Dr. Alex van der Ebb in part. The kidney of the fetus was, with an unknown family history, was obtained in 1972, probably. The precise date is not known anymore. The fetus, as far as I can remember, was completely normal. Nothing was wrong. The reasons for the abortion were unknown to me. I probably knew it at that time, but it got lost, all this information. 
HEK-293 was used on numerous occasions in Vatican-supported death cult research. Among these examples, the 2011 Implications for Skin Homeostasis paper with Dead in Conscience goes so far as to boast that the study was conducted according to the Declaration of Helsinki Principles, approval from the IDI IRCCS Ethics Committee, and informed consent from NS patient. Healthy donors were obtained for all described studies that used human materials. The murdered child who remains bound to HEK-293 did not give informed consent. Once again, the Vatican has no ears to hear the voice of innocent blood, the voice of Christ, which continues to cry out for justice. With covenant blessings, there is also covenant curses. Blessings for those faithful to the covenant. Curses for those who remain unfaithful. The Vatican has much to answer for. The Vatican, with its Pontifical Academy for Death, its pharmaceutical industry, its IDI death cult research, and its willfully ignorant damned sheep, must repent and do penance. The Pontifical Academy for Death's 2005 document admitted that it is sinful to use aborted fetal cells. The Vatican owned and operated Dermatopathic Institute of the Immaculate uses aborted fetal cells. These examples of death cult research show that the Vatican directly participates in the grave sin of using aborted fetal cells. The state of the world has reached a point that demands a sense of urgency. The shepherds are sleeping while the wolves devour the flock. Many of those wolves, disguised as brother shepherds, tuck the complacent guardians of the flock in their beds of slumber before ushering the slaughter. The shepherds have failed us. It is not good to coddle their failure. They will face their judgment just as each of us must account for our loyalties and betrayals. Wisdom grows from virtue. If the soil lacks virtue, then no wisdom shall go forth. We must strive to be holy or else we will be damned fools. Though the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith may have failed to stand against Big Pharma's godless industry of murder-derived vaccines, they did manage to leave no excuse for the Vatican's participation in evil. The Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith offers the following teaching from their 2008 document entitled Instruction Dignitas Personae on Certain Bioethical Questions. In this regard, the criterion of independence as it has been formulated by some ethics committees is not sufficient. According to this criterion, the use of biological material of illicit origin would be ethically permissible provided there is a clear separation between those who, on the one hand, produce, freeze, and cause the death of embryos, and, on the other, the researchers involved in scientific experimentation. The criterion of independence is not sufficient to avoid a contradiction in the attitude of the person who says that he does not approve of the injustice perpetrated by others, but at the same time accepts for his own work the biological material which the others have obtained by means of that injustice. When the illicit action is endorsed by the laws which regulate health care and scientific research, it is necessary to distance oneself from the evil aspects of that system in order not to give the impression of a certain toleration or tacit acceptance of actions which are gravely unjust. Any appearance of acceptance would in fact contribute to the growing indifference to, if not the approval of, such actions in certain medical and political circles. 
Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, 2008, number 35. We must not give the impression of toleration or acceptance of grave sin, as St. John Paul II has taught us. Abortion and euthanasia are thus crimes which no human law can claim to legitimize. There is no obligation in conscience to obey such laws. Instead, there is a grave and clear obligation to oppose them by conscientious objection. The right of conscientious objection as an expression of the right to freedom of conscience should be protected by law. Encyclical Letter Evangelium Vitae It is pathetically offensive that the Vatican is willing to take a stance against each contribution to the development of vaccines derived from murdered children, but then lack the courage to challenge the reception of these evil vaccines. This is the much-needed conscientious objection that would truly oppose Big Pharma. If there were no demand for Satan's anti-sacrament, then Big Pharma would not supply it. It seeks the communal acceptance of its slaves. The accumulation of sins involved in the production of evil vaccines were accumulated for the purpose of individuals receiving the evil product. Rather than oppose the accomplishment of this evil purpose, the Vatican plays a shell game of faithless ethics to ease the guilty consciences of the faithful. Simply put, the Vatican acts as an agent of the deceiver. This is offensive to God and a failure of duty to serve God's church. Even more condemning for these sons of Satan within the Vatican is their ongoing failure to live the moral demands of their faith. They have explicitly acknowledged the demand for moral research in their teachings to the faithful, yet they repeatedly violate these demands. The corruption within the Vatican does not reflect the Catholic faith. It is the expression of the faithless infiltrator. It should not surprise us to discover that along with the sins of clericalism, the same hierarchy mired in financial corruption, sexual perversion, systemic child abuse, destruction of families, and eternal deaths of souls is also guilty of illicit participation in the trafficking of murdered babies, along with its own direct participation in the grave sins of death cult science, the Vatican leads foolish sheep to participate in direct communion with the anti-sacrament of vaccines derived from child sacrifice. This anti-sacrament is Satan's safe and effective means to poison our embodied souls and thus cause grave harm to the body of Christ. If you can fall for this most unholy anti-sacrament, then you likely have very little, if any, will to stand up in the name of God, to fight against evil, to set yourself apart from Satan's kingdom, to be manly. If you remain in communion with the most unholy anti-sacrament, then you may very very well be a damned fool. How exactly do you set yourself apart from its evil? How exactly do you oppose it? Though there may be a handful of faithful bishops who actually take hell seriously and strive to lead souls to heaven, many more do not. Those faithful bishops that fearlessly stand up for Christ and against evil vaccines, as they should, are the glaring minority. 
The clerical tree is rotten from the top of the Vatican all the way down to the local parish. We are obligated to join the remnant of faithful bishops and heed the call of Christ. We must rebuke the Vatican's lies and reject the Pontifical Academy for death. We must tell these sons of Satan to be gone, to publicly repent and do serious penance for the salvation of their souls. God is a warrior. He leads us through the waters. We pick up our cross and follow him into the promised land. In Christ, we march onward between mortal sin and mortal persecution. There is eternal reward for those who lay their lives down in holy battle, and there is eternal punishment for those faithless servants who surrender to the world, the flesh, the devil. Breathe in the holy life of God, set apart from this fallen world, or breathe out the dying breath of maggots that cling to antichrist harlotry. The evil eye is caught in the tangled web of the 2005 Pontifical Academy for Death document. In spite of all the big pharma propaganda that was delivered in that document, there was still a moral guideline that prevents the faithful from receiving evil vaccines. According to the document for big pharma's anti-sacrament to be received, the following four conditions must be met. Grave risk to health. No moral alternative. The recipient of the vaccine or the parents of the child that receives the vaccine must make known their objections to the many evils associated with the murder-derived vaccines. Those who accept Big Pharma's evil vaccines must actively work towards moral alternatives. Only when these four conditions are met, only then is it morally permissible to receive these evil vaccines. These four conditions have never been met. Mild childhood diseases are not a grave risk to health. There are moral alternatives, but Big Pharma refuses to provide them. Rarely, if ever, do those who are willing to receive evil vaccines make any objections known. If they did make those objections known, then they might stir up enough moral courage to reject Satan's anti-sacrament. Neither the Vatican nor the damned sheep who follow the Vatican's mediocre moral reflections are actively working towards moral alternatives. Quite the opposite, they are revising and updating the need for moral alternatives with reiterated instructions of the moral obligation to receive Big Pharma's vaccines. Though under certain conditions it may be tolerable to accept Big Pharma's vaccines, these vaccines are never capable of being accepted as moral goods. They are evil. They are satanic. They pose grave danger to your embodied soul. Vaccines derived from murdered young ones are not moral goods. Any and every godless golden calf vaccine associated with murdered offspring, murdered children sacrificed for the lie of Satan, any and every vaccine of this kind should be destroyed and abolished. This should be the clear statement of the Pontifical Academy for Life, were it worthy of the name. Though the Vatican and its Pontifical Academy for Death may fail to live in Christ, we are blessed with a remnant of God's fire to guide our faithful journey. The following reflection from Father Michael Copenhagen offers illuminating wisdom. Restore ye to its owners. 
on the immorality of receiving vaccines derived from abortion. Take heed, lest perhaps it be stolen. Restore ye to its owners, for it is not lawful for us to eat or to touch anything that cometh by theft. Tobit 2.21 Such is the warning given by the just man Tobit, who suffered mockery, persecution, and tribulation at the hands of his own people, because he sought to keep God's law, to alone refuse idolatry and corruption in an evil age. He insisted on honoring God and neighbor by burying the dead at a time when the desecration of their remains was the state mandate. For this great deed he was forced to flee and placed under a sentence of death. Holy Scripture relates this account because burying the dead is more than just a corporal work of mercy. It is a grave obligation so that the creature whom the Creator loves so much, fashioned after his own image and likeness, is not abandoned at the wayside to be disfigured and dishonored while the rest of us callously step over his remains to go about our daily commerce. Was not the dignity of the human body and soul elevated still more after the time of Tobit, when our nature was assumed by the Son of God, who took flesh of the Virgin and came in our likeness that we might be irreversibly elevated above the angels? Tobit's predicament stemmed from honoring human nature and its creator, and Tobit's predicament now belongs to those who refuse vaccines made from aborted children. How is this so? It is best to set aside sterilizing semantics, to look at the plain truth. A child is torn from its mother's womb and then immediately dissected, if possible alive, with beating heart, so that the sample is fresh. A piece of the child's organ is then taken to a laboratory immersed in an enzyme to break the tissue down into individual cells, and when a continually reproducing immortal cell line has been obtained after many such abortions, it is patented, and the cells industrially multiplied in vats to become viral factories. When a sufficient amount of the infectious virus is grown in the cells, the brew is processed in a way which destroys the whole cells but leaves behind the virus along with significant amounts of the child's DNA and cellular protein. In the various states and territories, parents are required to administer this into the bodies of their children for the sake of the public good, even though the vaccine could be produced in an alternative and ethical manner. Those who refuse it are banned from the public square. Any healthy conscience has a natural revulsion to this ghoulish process, and closer moral analysis certainly justifies that reaction. In determining the moral laicity of using vaccines derived from abortion, an assessment of cooperation with evil in terms of distance from the original abortion is necessary but ultimately insufficient criterion, because there is another distinct and more immediate category of sin involved. To conclude, as some have, that there is only immediate remote material cooperation in abortion by the vaccine recipient is a red herring. It shifts emphasis away from the specific moral character of possessing and using the cell line itself toward historical association with the original abortion, obscuring the central problem while even causing it to go unnamed. 
the recipient is an immediate participant in the commission of continuous theft of human remains obtained through deliberate killing, their desecration through exploitation and trafficking, as well as ultimate omission to respectfully bury them. While the original killing establishes the illicit character of using the remains, their possession and use becomes a distinct evil in itself, the circumstances of which do not cease as a form of theft, desecration, exploitation, and refusal to bury, regardless of the consumer's distance in time from the abortion, or the number of cell divisions, or the merely subcellular fragmentary inclusion of the child's DNA and protein in the final dose. Two sanitizing mischaracterizations contribute to this unwarranted shift in emphasis away from immediate continuing theft toward historic completed abortion. Firstly, the broadness of labeling human remains obtained through violence as illicit biological material is not only insufficient but dehumanizing and offensive. Although the vast majority, if not all, of the cells currently used did not physically constitute part of the child's original body, these cells still belong to the child. They are a living remnant of the child's life in this world. If they are not the child's cells, then whose cells are they? Is it possible to stretch jargon so far as to say that these are no one's cells? No person donating their tissue for cell culture and knowingly encountering the resultant cells in a lab would identify them as anything other than my DNA, my cells. The child has been silenced. The parents have forfeited by abortion any right of consent to respectful scientific use of the body. The scientists and patent holders have no right to possess or use the cells. These human remains belong to God, must be respectfully reposed, and it is not for Caesar to say otherwise. Secondly, historical distance from the abortion does not distance us from the possession of something stolen. If I am the beneficiary of a violent bank robbery where the clerk was murdered to secure funds, my personal distance from the robbery does not make it licit to possess or spend those funds, or even other monies made playing the stock market with them. If this is the case with lifeless currency, how much more with the body of an innocent human being? If a a copyrighted film is captured, reproduced, and sold through the internet, it does not somehow become licit to possess and use it simply because it has been copied many times over from the original. Even if I have provided the means of copying, storage, and playback, the copyright protected item is the original artistic creation. Our artist is the divine author of human nature who produces a unique biological and spiritual work in his own image and likeness. It is absurd to say to public consumers that everyone must indefinitely use stolen work to help lessen the likelihood of a potential future problem even though a perfectly fine substitute can be easily and ethically provided. How much more with cannibalizing human remains obtained through violence? No one is bound to participate in one sin in order to avoid another. It is never permissible to do evil for a good purpose. For those who argue that participation becomes licit if receiving the vaccine is looked at as a temporary solution to a significant public health danger, they should know that it is not temporary, but expanding, and that it will be forced regardless of whether it helps public health or not.
Public authorities who support public murder cannot be taken seriously as guarantors of public health. If immortality through medicine is the new religion, then the insurance card is our baptismal certificate. Psychiatry, its confession. Doctors, its priests. The medical bureaucracy, its hierarchy. Research, its contemplation. Euthanasia, its anointing. And its Eucharist is the pharmaceutical solution, particularly vaccination. One person is is sacrificed that the nation might live, their body multiplied and distributed by the priests. Those who do not eat the flesh and drink the blood of this sacrifice will not have life in them, so we are told. It seems there is little more than a lab coat between this and human sacrifice as medicinal witchcraft. And there is an inquisition coming for those who contradict the new dogma. In one Washington Post article, we are put on notice. The initial steps we have taken are essential. Prohibit non-vaccinated children from public spaces, including schools. Promote educational efforts. And in extreme cases, force isolation on pockets of populations. Viewed through the lens of public safety, it is the parents who should be punished. Why not make them pay? for the harms they are causing. Fines for the increased public safety burdens put on these communities by a few ought not to be the responsibility of all. In many states, when hikers ignore warnings that certain trails are too dangerous and then have to be rescued, the fees for the rescue must be paid by the hikers. It's a fine for making a self-centered decision that placed an unreasonable burden on a larger community. Measles should be no different. In the same way, we have created sex offenders lists to protect our children. Communities can inventory families that choose not to be vaccinated, notifying employers of these parents as well as neighbors who may choose not to expose their children. Isolation, fines, public humiliation, and blacklisting. There is historic precedent as to where this leads. Despite the public threat in his own day, Tobit proceeded in his work under the command that he be slain, obeying the law of God rather than the unjust law of men while risking his life to do so. God made him an example of faithfulness amidst hardship. When he was mocked by his kinsmen for adherence to these good works and and told that his deeds were hopeless, he rebuked them, Speak not so, for we are the children of saints, and look for that life which God will give to those that never change their faith from him. Tobias chapter 2 verses 17 through 18. I remind all those who imitate Tobit's naysayers and persecutors that the God of heaven and earth is very much alive and very much offended, that he loves each of these murdered and exploited children as his particular creatures, that he will restore this biological material to its rightful place and its rightful owner on that day, and we will all meet these children face to face. The church hierarchy is plagued with parasites who refuse to fight for God and his kingdom. The Vatican has discarded its moral integrity. Its credibility is equal to the harlotry of public health authorities. The global tidal wave of mandatory vaccination swells above us all. As always, it is poised to strike the most vulnerable. The Vatican, as with the overwhelming majority of mask coat fanatics, foolishly proclaims its sinful enslavement to the world, the flesh, and the devil.
Christ commands repentance. Christ demands conversion. Christ promises division. If you are not for God, you are against God. Good or evil, truth or lies, hell or heaven, death or life. There is no neutrality. The Pontifical Academy for Death has chosen their side, as has the Vatican whores of Antichrist, as has the rest of the herd that marches down the broad and easy road to perdition. You must choose a side. Again and again you must make that choice. Again and again you must live a life of conversion or you will surely die the death. Choose wisely. By God's grace alone, keep the faith. Fight the good fight. Even amidst the failure of duty from unmanly shepherds, even amidst the discouraging plague of wolves in shepherds' clothing, allow God's love to cast out your fears. Do not give to Caesar what belongs to God. Caesar, along with all of us, must bend the knee to the King of Kings. Let us conclude with a healthy portion of wisdom from the book entitled It is Right and Just, written by Scott Hahn and Brandon McGinley. Since the Enlightenment, many of the most consequential shifts have occurred as a result of detaching fundamental concepts from the anchor of truth. For instance, for most pre-modern people, the idea of liberty would have been obviously limited by moral rightness. The concept of a freedom to sin would have been incomprehensible a contradiction in terms. But now, the idea that liberty might be limited by anything beyond our own imaginations and may be causing harm to others provided the other has been born has become incomprehensible. By Karl Marx's time, the concept of religion had undergone the same unmooring. Most moderns, including most modern Christians, however, don't recognize that Marx's understanding of religion is any different from that of pre-modern people. Peoples. While some catechesis about the deformation of liberty has occurred among both Christians and non-Christians, we have all been steeped in a thoroughly modern, liberal, and fundamentally secular account of religion from which no dissent has been organized. Therefore, this account seems universal and timeless, even though it only rose to prominence in the last few centuries. And so the truth is that the vast majority of modern Christians would define religion more or less exactly as Karl Marx did, a system of beliefs usually but not always about the supernatural, in the same way that squirrels, hamsters, and prairie dogs are all examples of a type, specifically families of the order Rodentia, so do we consider Christianity, Islam, and Buddhism species of a genus called religion. While Marx was describing a Europe still dominated by Christianity, he was clearly used Using religion in this broader sense, or else he would have said Christianity. As a good materialist, Marx saw all belief systems that provided a bomb of unrealism as barriers to the consciousness of the working classes and therefore to revolution and communism. Religion, no matter its substance, was considered an anthropological sociological phenomenon, an interesting habit of human persons and societies, like politics, but one that that would soon be rendered irrelevant.
but modern Christians too generally think of religion in secular materialist terms, consolidating all systems of belief under the umbrella of a shared anthropological sociological phenomenon. We might understand, as we should, that certain belief systems correspond more directly with the truth than others. Even so, we consider them all equal participants in the category called religion in the same way a beaver and a rat are both equally rodents, even if we find one more useful and lovely than the other. This, however, is the same error modern liberals have made in detaching liberty from truth. We would not say that abortion and charity are equal manifestations of the phenomenon of human liberty, nor should we say that true and false beliefs are equal manifestations of the phenomenon of religion. Rather, we should say, along with the Church and thinkers through the ages, that religion is a virtue, one like any other, that we can cultivate in truth or extinguish through error. We cannot say, at least in the sense that most moderns understand it, that there are several religions. There is rather one religion, and that is, as we will see, the virtue by which we give justice to the one Lord who created and saves us. In the pre-modern era, the Church did use the concept of religion in the plural, but it referred more closely to what we would now call spiritualities or charisms. Specifically, the plural was used to describe the various religious orders, Franciscans, Dominicans, and so on. This only emphasizes the universality of the one religion by recognizing the diversity of the ways we might be called to cultivate it. Indeed, the idea of different religions existing and competing on par with Christianity would have been considered at best quite odd and at worst incomprehensible. There were not in the pre-modern Christian mind several competing religions, but only what they would have called simply the faith. Within the tradition of the faith there were heresies. Outside the tradition of the faith there were polytheistic paganism and monotheistic deformations of faith in the true God. The faith was considered by them as it should be by us, the fixed point to which all other systems of belief and practice conform or from which they deviate. Religion itself, therefore, corresponds to that fixed point. It is not a generic phenomenon of the human psyche or of human societies that can be directed haphazardly without consequence or corruption. Religion is ordered to the faith, ordered to the truth, ordered to Christ. It is part of what it means to be human, but like all aspects of our nature, it is meant to be directed by and to Jesus, not by and to our whims. As we will see later on, we can't escape ordering our lives around a higher power. The question is whether we choose the true and living God or an idol. How could we possibly choose an idol? The Lord created us. He sustains us. He was tortured and he died for us. The very least we can do is organize our little lives around him. It shouldn't even be a question. And yet we remember that the ancient Israelites were literally freed from slavery by the Lord and then promptly started worshipping a gilded bovine. Even when we know without a doubt what he has done and continues to do for us, we find ourselves easily drawn away. When we ignore him or turn away from him, that is a failure not just of gratitude but of justice 
a failure to render what is owed. Of course, there is nothing we can give that God needs, nor is there anything we can give that would equal what He has given. The point, however, is to give whatever we can, and in His infinite graciousness He takes it from us, glorifies it, and is glorified by it. This virtue of justice rendered to Him who is justice itself is what the Church through the ages has meant by religion. The hymn, Lord of all hopefulness, tracks the way God's divine qualities comfort and sustain us over the course of a day. The first verse, beginning with the title words, ask for the virtues of joy and hope through the day to come. The next two verses, asking for strength and love, cover the workday and the return home. The hymn concludes at bedtime, Lord of all gentleness, Lord of all calm, whose voice is contentment, whose presence is balm. Be there at our sleeping and give us, we pray, our peace in our hearts, Lord, at the end of the day. There's no need to give Karl Marx too much credit, but we can say that he is correct that faith in God is a balm for the wounds of the mind, body, and spirit inflicted in this veil of tears. It is striking and, in its way, beautiful that one of the most influential materialists in human history recognized this truth. That Marx's reaction was to demand that such faith be extinguished should remind us how inhumane materialism really is, even as it sometimes goes by the misleading name of humanism. What not only Marx but also most moderns miss is that faith in Jesus Christ is so much more than a bomb and so much more than one aspect of life that can be neatly walled off from the rest. We speak of religion as if it were a hobby or, if we're really taking it seriously, a personality quirk, something that you spend time on, something that is meaningful to you and gives you meaning, something that's just a weird part of your life that makes no claim on the rest of your life or on that of others. If your religion makes you feel happy like your team winning a Super Bowl or getting a juicer or finding a new romance, then more power to you. But if your religion makes claims on your secular life, on your time and your decisions outside the four walls of the church, you might be unbalanced. And if it makes claims on others, you might be dangerous. This makes sense if religion is merely a sociological phenomenon. It makes sense if there are several religions among which you might choose, each of which has its own subjective pros and cons, and each of which stays in the restricted niche set aside for it by secular society. But it doesn't make sense at all if religion is a virtue, a habit of gratitude and generosity to God that we have to cultivate. It doesn't make sense if God is real and actually does for us the things we say He does, to shunt him off to a corner labeled religion in the modern sense is a gross injustice. To describe his presence as a bomb is good and right. To leave it at that misses the point of that bomb, which is to bring us closer to him, even to make us more like him. When Alexander Solzhenitsyn was asked to reflect on the root cause of the political and moral devastation of Soviet Russia, he recalled a little statement with big implications shared by elders when he was a boy. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. 
the sentiment is at once preciously simple and frighteningly consequential. This is the way things always are with God, though. An eternally fascinating and infinitely important reality emerged from the simple statement, Let there be light. To forget God, then, is not just to have a lapse of memory. It is to ignore the foundational duties of justice that are part of our very nature as human beings. And it is to detach oneself and, eventually, one's community and nation from reality itself. Here's how Solzhenitsyn put it. The laws of physics and physiology will never reveal the indisputable manner in which the Creator constantly day in and day out participates in the life of each of us, unfailingly granting us the energy of existence. When this assistance leaves us, we die. In the life of our entire planet, the Divine Spirit moves with no less force. This we must grasp in our dark and terrible hour. If 1983 was a dark and terrible hour, what does that make the third decade of the 21st century? The Soviet dissident wouldn't be surprised at our situation. He describes secularism as a gradual sapping of strength from within that is a threat to faith. Perhaps even more dangerous than any attempt to assault religion violently from without. He continues unsparingly, judging by the continuing landslide of concessions made before the eyes of our very own generation. The West is ineluctably slipping toward the abyss. Western societies are losing more and more of their religious essence as they thoughtlessly yield up their younger generation to atheism. And even when we don't produce avowed atheists, we far too often produce practical atheists. That is, we have raised multiple generations now to believe that religion is a private matter with no meaningful duties or consequences beyond the individual. Religion, however, is a duty whether we like it or not. Regardless of what we might think about the matter, God did create us and did save us. He didn't ask our opinion. We did not will ourselves into being or ask for the sacrifice on Calvary. That was all his doing, and it was all ordained from the beginning of time. The idea of the unchosen duty is incredibly difficult for the modern mind to understand. So much of the way we think of the world and our fellow men is based on the logic of the contract that we are to fulfill the obligations we signed on to, and that only those duties to which we agree have moral force. Usually, this manifests itself in us denying that we have any duties to the poor and weak, especially the unborn, that we don't explicitly choose. But this attitude also corrodes our understanding of the duties we owe to the greatest and most powerful. We owe the virtue of religion to Jesus Christ, not because we choose Him, but because he chose us to deny Christ either by explicitly rejecting him or by implicitly compartmentalizing him doesn't revoke that duty. It just means we're failing to render it. Trust in Christ. Prayer and fasting is not optional. Pray the rosary at least once a day. Examine your conscience every night. Repent of your sins and convert your life to the will of God. Correspond to the grace of the Church's holy sacraments. You either live for God and die to yourself, or you live for yourself and die apart from God. May we lay our lives down in the fight against evil. May Christ reign supreme, be just, and fear not.